Got it. So you had enough experience where you knew you knew where the, you knew where the line was, and you knew that you were getting close to it, and you could turn around before you got there. Which we talk about that all the time. It's like that's one of the big issues with rescues and the whites is that people don't know when they've crossed the line because they don't have the experience to know that they've. You know, sometimes somebody breaks a leg, and that's that's, that's yeah. that is what it is. But um, a lot of times when people get in trouble, like they they've crossed a line, they don't realize it because they don't have they've never been in that area, they've never been in that situation, and they get in trouble. But you've been there, done that, which is a huge huge. Advantage. Well, that's the thing. Like the river crossings were new for me, and like the presidentials in the winter were new. I'd never been in the president, the prezi in the winter, but pretty much. I mean, I had been on a like a year and a half ago, or two years ago, I'd been on a blizzard on Gio before. Like I've been in blizzards in the Adirondacks before I camped out below minus 20 in the Adirondacks before. Like I had done a bunch of stuff before in these conditions. So I knew where I was like, I knew where my comfort zone was and I knew I had a good gauge on, on all that stuff. Yeah. I didn't take any of it lightly. And when I felt like I needed to turn around, I turned around, Katahdin, whenever I needed to, I was like, this is a bad situation. This is a great bookend because we spent you know, a, a good number of episodes in the last several months talking about a lot of these principles and, you know, your, your tale really just sort of wraps up everything that we've been, you know, preaching for the last several episodes, like in one nice gift wrapped <laughs> box. I think it's, I, I think it's important to know, to know those limits. And to me, it goes back to the one, it's experience, and it goes back to the comparison thing too, right? Like if I was going up Katahdin and if my mindset getting towards the summit was, oh, but like what if you didn't do it or what would people say if you didn't summit or comparing myself to some idea of a perfect through hike, I could have let that voice be louder than the voice in my head that was saying like, this summit isn't for you today. Like, turn around, right? And... I just think it's important to honor our limits, right? Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, Welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. I believe we are ready. All right, episode 58. So, 58. Welcome, Stomp. Welcome, Scott. Welcome, Mike. Hello. Hey, Scott. Hi, hi. Fresh off the trail. That's pretty epic. We have quite the show for everybody tonight. Yes, very exciting. So I've, I'm just double-checking, Stomp. I have my Audacity recording here, and then I've got the other recording done so that we can get Scott's audio. So I am not going to screw any technology up till I swear. Why would you say that? <laughs> because I'm sensitive about that shit. Ah, Okay. <laughs> Are we going to talk about your solo debut? 
this weekend. Just get it over with. <laughs> Just get it over with and let's move on to the next topic. <laughs> well, it's sort of interesting. The last episode with Christina from Rockhopper, we had technical difficulties with her at the very end, so people may have noticed that. And then we released that episode on Saturday, and when I woke up, I'm looking at, um, at YouTube, and much to my surprise, I see two episode 57's up there so I click on the first one it sounds great it's like the, the usual routine and then I click on the second one and it's like blank for maybe a few minutes and then all of a sudden it's Mike and I scroll a little further forward and it's Mike and I scroll towards the end and it's Mike so it was just it was just Mike's audio track that he had uploaded <laughs> yeah yeah so so and Scott and for the audience listening basically what we do is so we we're on like this video uh, squadcast system so stomp is recording his audio isolated on his computer mm-hmm. i'm recording my audio isolated on my computer and then we've got scott through the squadcast system and we'll actually be recording his video isolated as well and then stomp does some kind of magic with audio i don't know what he does but he takes all three of those Top tracks secret. puts them together and then puts music on them does whatever and then he sends me the final file, and then I then upload it to our podcast platform thing, this thing called Libsum. But unfortunately, because we were like a day late, and I had just gone hiking with my daughter, and I was like trying to get that stupid Starlink that I talked about set up up in Maine, <laughs> and it took too long, and it was a whole thing. So I got home at like 9 o'clock, and unfortunately, when I uploaded the audio, I uploaded the original file of just me. Right. On the podcast, so it sucks. It was embarrassing. But anyway, I deleted it. Scott, it will not happen on this one. I understand. Like, you're a big hiking celebrity here. I don't no, want to mess no, up. No, no, no. That would be kind of funny. So for, yeah. for the 111 special listeners that got to hear Mike's solo debut, find, you know, consider yourselves lucky because uh, that's a yeah. very unique treat. It's like a preview of like when I'm cooking dinner at night and I'm talking to myself. It was just basically like that. So. <laughs> oh, my anyway. goodness. All right. So enough of that. We're never going to speak of it again next topic. Yeah. Well, like, apparently the air raid siren is scaring the hell out of listeners. So people are like pulling over on the side of the road to let police by and like dropping their plates, you know, as they're doing the dishes. They hear the siren and they're freaking out. So sorry about that. I still think it's super cool and a little, little behind behind the scenes. Is that's sort of the alarm that I get when there's an actual mission and apparently some other search and rescue folks use the same thing and it, it, it scares the hell out of me too. So anyway, <laughs> sorry. For, sorry for All the right. fright. Moving on. All right, and stop now. So you want to talk about the Kentucky Derby? Oh, yeah. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't watch it this year. Yeah. Scott, have you heard about this? This, uh, the run no, for the roses, I, Kentucky Derby. This I know what it is, but I've heard of like the recent one. No. It's worth mentioning. Dude, he's he's been hiking to get rid of that stuff. He doesn't want to deal with. I that suppose. Stuff. Yeah. I, I <laughs> mean, there are some the stories. Grid, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bet. Yeah, I can imagine. But uh, this just happened over the weekend. Um, Rich Strike 
was a horse that was not even slated to run uh, the race. And there was a scratch of another horse. So there was an actual opening that opened up for this horse to come in. And it was in 21st place. And the odds of this horse winning was something like 88 to 1 or something of that nature. Just astronomical odds. And this horse pulled it out. And the video is absolutely stunning. If you haven't seen it, you got to watch it. Because it's once in a lifetime type of event. No, it's it's amazing because this... I mean, it was it was part jockey. The jockey just maneuvered right to the pack. But then to watch this horse muscle its way through the entire pack and win is just unbelievable. So highly recommended. You got to see it. Uh, who knows if it'll happen over the next two races? I mean, it may have been a fluke, but I don't know. It was awesome. Yeah. The only thing I did see was I saw a video on... Um I saw a TikTok video of the horse. What's the name of the horse again? Rich? Uh, Rich Strike. Rich Strike. So apparently, I don't know um, anything about horses. I did have a friend who his father like owned horses and they raced horses. So we would go to Rockingham every once in a while. Yeah. But this ho- what I did see was that the horse after the race, I guess that some of these horses, not all of them, but like they get all, they're like fired up. And I, I don't know if they're in like their warrior mentality or something like that but they need to they call it like ponying ponying them down so they'll have a special pony and like another jockey type person but not like the little jockeys or the big guys and they'll bring a pony up next to the horse Mm -hmm. to calm it down and this horse was like biting the other pony and it was biting the other handler and the other handler i guess had to punch the horse to say like calm down but, like, a lot of the people are mad because they're saying that you shouldn't punch the horse because you got him all riled up to run, run the race. And other people, like, that's just how horses are handled. So I don't know what goes on with them. But it was it was interesting. Yeah, that was an interesting video. Yeah. So we'll yeah. see what happens with the other two races. <clears throat> yeah. 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 So, Stomp, you got the rest of these, these openers here. I didn't even read this article that you posted. Yeah. I, I skimmed it and I'm just going to refer people to it because it's a really neat article about the mountain stewards, not just here in New Hampshire, but um, in Maine and New York. And it actually goes into sort of their history, how they started, how it was sort of like an outgrowth of fire wardens and things like that. So we'll give you the link and you can check it out. And, um, you know, we always want to say thanks to the stewards that are doing such a great job educating uh, hikers as they enter the trails, making sure they're prepared. And not only that, but just, you know, assisting in uh, maintaining trails and everything. It's just, it's a great article. So we'll, we'll share that with everybody. Yeah, I'll... um. I'll try to find out. I don't know when the steward, the trailhead steward program starts in the whites. I think I would have to think like after Memorial Day is typically when I will see them. Yeah. Um, but I will reach out to a couple of people that have messaged me about that program before and see when they when they start their their program. Okay, sounds good. And they're always looking for help too. By the way, so. Yeah, you got to go through the formal training, and the form, the training program started. I think it was in like early April, mm-hmm. so I don't know if you can like go outside of that cycle. But I do know that um, I had heard from somebody because we had given it a plug. Somebody had followed up and said that they had their biggest crowd ever for the, the program. Yeah. So hopefully they'll have a lot of people out there. I think they do like six or seven trailheads. 
And and for people that aren't unclear on this, so the stu- the Trailhead Steward Program in the White Mountains is basically they'll typically set up at busy trailheads. So I know that they do uh, Champney Falls. They they set up on Falling Waters, Appalachia, maybe um, Appalachia, and then um, Amanusic. Well, sticky, and then there's probably one or two more that I'm missing. And what they'll do is just sort of they're there to educate. So they'll they'll check hikers in, and they'll let them know about the trail conditions. They'll talk about the ten essentials. They'll talk about other safety. They'll make sure that people have water and all these other provisions that they might need in order to not uh, get themselves in trouble on the trail. So it's a good program. And Stomp had sent over an article talking about the the history about. Um, this program, not in the whites, but in the Adirondacks as well, Adirondacks as well as Maine. I was going to say that I've seen it in the Adirondacks, stewards at trailheads and such. So, yeah. 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 Do you uh, do you typically like, do you stop and talk to them or do you do what I do when I try to avoid them? And <laughs> I just don't feel like talking to anybody. I'll stop and chat, but if they're chatting with somebody, usually I just end up scooting by. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's that's my move too. I'll wait till a crowd gets there and then I like slide past them. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, but most people you should talk to them. I'm just antisocial. So <laughs> now for uh, donations, we have uh, Rhonda E uh, donated three coffees, and uh, she was the one that actually brought this <laughs> comment about the siren, air raid siren. So touche, thank you, Rhonda, very much, and um, a quick shout out to at Reckless Brewing, where you'll f- enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch, many 4,000-footers, and less than 10 minutes from the Five Corners. Check them out. That's it. That is it. That's all we yeah. got. All right, so we're going into the Fast show furious. summary here. So, yeah, exactly. So welcome to um, Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, episode 58. Tonight we are joined by Aquaman, Scott Benneroff. So he's literally fresh off the trail, having completed a southbound trek of the Appalachian Trail. And many people complete the AT every year, but very few complete this trail starting southbound in winter. So uh, this is an incredibly difficult feat, given the weather, the logistics, the gear, and the terrain challenges that one must overcome to succeed. Uh, so tonight, Scott will share his journey, and uh, we'll dive into everything that it took to get through um, probably the northern part of the trail, and then you know we'll, we'll talk a bunch about sort of his history and hiking and, and really dive into it. So we're excited. Um, so all of this, and then we're going to dive into some recent hiking stories. So Stomp did a big bushwhack out to the captain, and I had a trip up to Kearsarge North, so we'll talk about those, and then we'll wrap up with some updates on the current forest road statuses in the whites and then some recent search and rescue news has been a few few rescues to go over so i'm mike and i'm stomp let's get started let's get started all right so uh beer talk here so scott we didn't even prep you but typically we'll have a beer or a drink or water whatever you whatever you want yeah uh stomp you you drinking anything good tonight stomp yes i had oh go ahead go ahead scott stomp sounds like scott sorry (laughs) <laughs> I just, I just got, I just have water. I just have water. <laughs> you get water. Okay. Perfect. Rightly so. Rightly so. Yeah. I had actually a donation from family tonight. So I just want to thank um, Craig and Dolls down at Spinner's Pizza down in Ballard Vale, North, uh, actually Andover. Uh, it's 
Spinners is a family business. Um, and Craig sent along a four pack of St. Bernardus, which is sort of funny. Um, it is a Belgian Abbey Ale and boy, it's really good. It's a very rich, um, beer for sure. And it's 10% alcohol, which is always a good thing for me. Um, Here's the, uh, the you'll, you'll find it, Mike. Here's what it looks like. St. Bernardus. Oh, nice. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. Very nice. So it's like a it's one a and done glass kind of thing. bottle. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's super rich. I, I sent a picture of um, this one to Steve, uh, Reckless Steve, and he was like, oh, that's one of my favorites. So check it out. It's very good. And you? I have a um, double IPA from Frost Beer Works. It's called Lush. So my brother-in-law was up. We had a little gathering for Mother's Day yesterday, and my brother-in-law came up. So it's 8% alcohol, so I may be wrecked by the end of this show. <laughs> not a big drinker. I literally only drink during the podcast, so once a week I'll have a beer. Yeah. <laughs> so, Scott, you may we may be passed out, and you may be running this show a little later. <laughs> I got it. Got it. Clear as can be right here. Just water. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> awesome. Uh. <laughs> All right. So now we're going we're gonna to get into some recent hikes. So, uh, Stump, I think uh, you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Oh, go for it. Yeah. Okay. So I got out. I uh, had a busy weekend. So Friday I had my, I've talked about this before, but the company I work at, we have these wellness days every two months, which is great. So you just take a Friday off and do what you want. So yeah. um, took my daughter up to, she didn't, we didn't want to do a 4,000 footer because she just didn't feel like spikes and, and, and ice and all that stuff. So she's like, let's just do something a little bit lower. So I was like, we have to go to the house in Maine. So I was like, let's find something close to North Conway area. So it came down to South Moat, North Moat, or Kearsarge North. So we ended up taking the trip up to Kearsarge North, which was perfect. Yeah. So um, Any for those of you that crowds? aren't familiar with it, it's 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 the mountain that's right next to Mount Cranmore. It almost looks like a perfect pyramid, and it's got a nice big fire tower on top of it. Yeah. Any crowds? No crowds. Um, there was one car in the parking lot when we got we got there around 9.45, 10 o'clock in the morning. There was one car in the lot. And then we got up there. That gentleman was coming down as we hit the backside. We were probably about a mile from the peak. And then we had we had the whole summit to ourselves for about an hour. We, had, we got up there and we saw in the book that um, Eric um, Todd had been the – he had been the last person up there. So he signed the book. And then uh, we were able to sign the book. But anyway, Eric Todd um, Sweet was up there right before us. So he had written in the book that he had been up there the night before. And then we got there the next morning and signed the book. Yeah. Um, That's neat. And then, yeah, as we were heading down, there was a little bit of ice on the backside. So there's still a little bit of ice on the, you know, 3,000 foot range is where it starts. Yeah. And then from there, we just... You know, we were just able to bypass it all. We didn't need spikes or anything. And then we had awesome views. Yeah. Not as epic as the day that me and you went up there when when we had the undercast, but it was still pretty awesome. Yeah, I've never seen an undercast like that. Yeah. 360 degrees. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. But if you are looking for a good, you know, it's it's not an easy hike, but it's not that difficult. It's just a steady, it doesn't change. It's just a steady up. It's about 2,200 feet of elevation gain. You go from 800 feet, and it's like 2,400. So you go from 800 feet up to about 3,200. And it's 
you know, it's it's got nice views on the ledges. It's got a little bit of a challenge on the backside with uh, with the ice that was there, but overall, it's a it's a pretty straightforward hike with an awesome fire tower. So I highly recommend it. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So what about you? You and Mark went out for some big adventure. Yeah. Hit the uh, captain. Um, The captain is a really remote crag just for the listeners. And it's nestled in between the Hancocks and Mount Carrigane. Um, It's, not for the faint of heart, I guess, in terms of the bushwhacking portion of it. What was really interesting was we drove down all the way to the end of Sawyer River Road where uh, Hancock Notch Trail starts and you park there. And so the I, gate's open. The, 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 the initial gate off of 302 is open. Correct. Right. Okay. And it was sparse, man. There was nobody up there. I was very surprised. No cars. On the way out, we saw maybe half a dozen cars at some of the lots, Signal Ridge in particular. Um, but... It was a it was a fun adventure. I mean, Mark is such a trooper. I really have to hand it to him. He um, he was down. He's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's try it out because he had heard heard some of the rumors and things and some of my previous stories. And um, I was really actually sort of reluctant to go. Um, I wanted to do something to sort of reset my my psychology and my my mind about getting back into some bigger hikes and like that one. I'm like, oh my god, what did I do? You know what I mean? Like, like do I want to do yeah. this hike? Like, you guys see this shiner here? I'm shredded from the uh, the bushwhack. Like, my arms are shredded, bruised. It's brutal. Oh yeah, I mean, my arms. I look at yeah. it. The guys at work today were like, "Did you walk through like barbed wire or something?" And uh, the kid goes to me at work, like, did, why didn't you bring a, uh, like a, what do they call it? Um, uh, one of the things you cut long, down. Long sleeves? No, <laughs> you, no, it's too hot for, too hot for long sleeves. Um, what are those bushwhackers you use? The blades or whatever. Machete, um, oh, machete. Machete. You, you can't use a machete because you're on a 60 degree grade and you're pulling yourself up by tree by tree. So you can't hold on to a machete. It's impossible. So anyway, you get chewed up. Uh, but it was a fun trip. You know, it's like we pack the bikes and what you do is when, when you park your truck at or your car at the end of the uh, Sawyer River, you take the North Fork and it's literally 50 yards away from the parking lot. And from there, what we did was we rode our mountain bikes straight to uh, more or less the beginning of what you would consider a trail. But it's it's a combination of trail, herd path, maybe old logging or carriage road. I'm not quite sure. Interestingly enough, somebody's been pruning and um, clearing the trail. So the trail itself that leads you to the captain, which is perhaps about maybe two miles uh, before you start to hit the strainer brooks, it's like dozens of brooks, and it, that's where the bushwhack starts. That The trail was fantastic. It was so easy to follow. It was amazing. And then from there, um, you know, we made the bushwhack up in, I think, maybe an hour and a half, two hours um, hit the summit. There was trace snow, but mostly ice on the call between Carrigane and the summit cone of the captain, which is 3,500 feet for the captain. And what you have to do is you can either go up the climber's route, which is you know rock scramble. We ditched that idea because of the ice. We ended up coming down that way, which is crazy, but we ended up going on the north side, which was a bit snowier and icy and that was oh my god it was it was wild so good time good time um if you're if you're into an adventure and you want to get some bushwhacking skills that is the place man it's just crazy in there 
I think I might have to go out one more time with Mason uh, sometime soon. But um, yeah, that was my trip. <laughs> so I'm like running on fumes right now. I'm sort of beat. Yeah, that sounds that sounds crazy. So you, you at the point where you've gone out there so much now that it's not it's not hard for you to just find your way. You, you're taking the same route pretty much every time now. It's not it's not the same. It's it's the same route in terms of the trail portion, but the second you hit the brooks, um, which is essentially at the base of the cliff itself, it then it's bushwhack. I mean, there is no like same route, but it's it's a rough ballpark area. It's refined to the point where I'm avoiding the, the pitfalls and the traps because there are dozens of traps in that area. You can get sucked into these massive gullies that are just a nightmare or thick sections of, uh, you know, bramble or, you know, the thick dead trees that cut you up. Um, I don't know. It's getting easier every time. This time was interesting. We actually followed one of the brooks primarily up to the base of the ledges themselves and then we started shading right and it brought us right up really quickly so it was actually pretty cool a little sketchy following the brook all the way up it was i don't know on average maybe a foot of water running okay yeah um but um you know and and as time goes on with the warmer weather those brooks dry up quite a bit so it'd be even easier what's funny about those brooks the Unlike a lot of the places in the whites where the rocks are super slippery, these brooks and streams are super um, tr- tractionable, I guess. You know, this great grip. Yeah, it's really funny. For are the there most- any views up there? Like every time I see you guys post pictures, it's just like you're surrounded by trees. Can you see anything? You can see the captain when you're maybe about a mile out from hitting the base of the cliff itself and then there's a climbers camp um, just to the south east where uh, there is a slide maybe you know 100 100 foot high slide that you can ascend and then get advantage as well but that's it there's only two or three viewpoints and then it's um it's all shrouded by tree up top well, I think I'll cheer you guys on. I like views. <laughs> oh, oh! by the way, there, there is another view, actually, that um, you can access on the way down, which is a southerly view. So you get this great view of um, Tri-Pyramid, North Tri from the west all the way over to Chikora. So you get that whole okay. stretch. So you see Pasaconaway, uh, Whiteface, the whole thing. It's great. Um, so from those mountains, actually, I mean, the, the the legend was that you could only see the captain from, like, Potash, but that's not true. You can see it from Chikora all the way over to uh, the Tri Pyramids if you're looking. Okay. Yeah. Well, congratulations, and Thanks, you know man. maybe side joke a little bit, but this, so you so told me there was no bugs out, none, and that sixty uh, degrees, beautiful snowpack wasn't bad at all. Not bad. There, so I think it's similar yeah. to what you experienced. Yeah. Yeah. That absolutely. Right. So that's my story. Right. I'm sticking to it. Very good. All right, so we're on to you, Scott. This is your moment. You ready? Oh, hold on a minute. Back up. Oh, oh, we have oh, a notable sorry. hike. We have a notable hike. Oh, we do. Yeah, we got oh. tagged by um, a listener, A. Folsom 33, and um, it was an overnight on Chikora. So thank you for tagging us, and uh, that is Slasher's notable hike of the week. Super cool pictures, too. Where did they stay? Did they stay at the, uh, the cabin? It, no, it looked like they were just right on the summit. Yeah, they were cowboy, oh, really? cowboy camping, I believe. Yeah, from based upon the pictures. You know what? I think I saw that. I think that they stayed at the cabin and then went back up there mm-hmm. to just they just 
they just sat up there in their their sleeping bags for the sunrise. Yeah, super cool. So thanks for which I think if if the listeners are. I, and I get this question occasionally from people like where the best sunrises are. Chikora is definitely got to be like top three. No doubt about it. <laughs> yeah. It is special. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's nothing blocking. I've done yeah. the sunrise on Chikora. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's nothing blocking. There's no, no other mountains blocking anything. So when you get up there, it's just, you know, you catch the sunrise. It's amazing. It's yeah. And you watch it hit everything behind you. But you can see the whole sunrise. Yes, yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's always awesome. cold too. <laughs> yeah, in the warmer I months. Know. Yeah, remember we did it with Jimmy Chuck, and it was like tough. Like we we came up Champney Falls, and it was like well, three in the morning or something. Sure what the was. hell are we doing here? Yeah, yeah. That's always a challenge that early in the morning, and you're like, we can't miss it. So this is that pressure. Get up yeah. there. <laughs> awesome. All right. Any, are you going to interrupt me or can we talk to Scott now? I think we're good. Let's move on to the, the star of the show. <laughs> it's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. All right. All right. So, stop. I guess I'll start and then Scott will ask you to introduce yourself. But so, um, do you prefer to go by Aquaman or Scott? Either one, you can call me Scott. Scott's easy. Okay, got it. So, so Scott, the um, so we had first heard of you. I think the, so. The reason we have Scott here is that he just completed a southbound um, AT hike where he started in the winter, which almost no one has done. I think the only person I'm aware of that's done this is the the I think the the hiking Viking, and then our friends Arlette and Rich had attempted it a couple of years ago and had got hit with like such incredible snow. That they weren't able to make. I think that they they had to go around the Mahusics, and then eventually life happened, and they I think they had to bail out sometime in Massachusetts or something like that. But um, you do hear about people talking about doing it occasionally. But I think we first became aware of you. You had already made it through the hundred mile wilderness, and were plowing through um, the, the Mahusics and down through New Hampshire. So we've been keeping an eye on your progress throughout the entire hike. And, you know, lo and behold, you, you made it all the way down to Georgia. So we want to definitely have you on to, to talk a little bit about your adventure. And, you know, we'll talk about all kinds of stuff around gear and getting through Maine and New Hampshire in the winter and all that stuff. But I guess maybe to start off with, could you introduce yourself, talk a little bit about sort of your background, how you initially got into hiking, and then we'll talk a little bit about your or first through hike and then talk about the, the most recent one. Right, right. So first off, thanks for having me on. This is, this is really fun. It's awesome to, to meet both of you. So thank you. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, we're glad and, to have you. Yeah. And so Scott Benneroff, I'm 26 years old. I'm from New Jersey, which is where I am now. And I went to school in Boston. I went to Northeastern. And before the hike, I was living in Concord, New Hampshire. So the whites are no stranger to me. Um, I threw hiked the Appalachian Trail in 2019. I threw hiked the. I did a northbound March to July. I threw hiked the Long to Vermont Long Trail northbound in 2016 in July. I've done the Northeast 111. So I've done all the four thousand footers in the Northeast. And I grew up. We have a cabin in the Adirondacks. My family have had it for decades. So I grew up going up there. And I really got into outdoorsy stuff at a very young age, going to summer camp up there. And then I really got into backpacking and hiking 
six years ago was the first time I ever went backpacking in my life. Um, and then I, I had this idea in my head before I'd ever gone backpacking that I wanted to do the AT and I'd been getting into hiking, day hiking and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I figured, well, I ought to learn how to backpack first. I bought all the gear, just started going after it. And my third backpacking trip ever was the long trail. And then I did all the 46ers in the Adirondacks. And then I did the AT, starting in, into winter backpacking and hiking. And then I found myself on the AT this winter. Got it. And then when you were in, so when you were in college, um, were you, you were heading up during college to do, to do hikes as well? Yeah, I was actually not heading to the Whites or Maine. I was heading to the Adirondacks to hike because yeah. I was really intent on doing the 46 for some reason. And mm-hmm. I also knew I wanted to do the AT. And this idea, I had this idea in my head of like seeing the Whites in Maine for the first time on foot from Georgia. And I just thought that would be amazing so the first time i stood on musalak was the first time i ever really been in the whites and i'd walked from georgia it was on my through hike in 2019 it was incredible wow wow so you that's interesting so you went to, so you were in college and you knew like you got the bug when you were in college mm-hmm. um did you did you obviously you're in northeastern what, what did you study at northeastern i was a mechanical engineering graduate mechanical engineering so you obviously you did at least one co-op maybe two co-ops at northeastern mm-hmm. so you get a little bit of work did we did you have to work in between the so you did the long trail in 2016 and then the at in 2019 were you working in between that or so, were you in school the whole time yeah the long trail was a summer break during school i had two months off and i took three weeks and did the long trail then i finished school i worked my schedule around so i would graduate in december so i could northbound the at right after i graduated and that's what i ended up doing graduated december 2018 march 2019 i was in georgia heading north um and then i got a job working for a couple years that's when i moved to new hampshire and then in october i left that position applied to grad school and came out here so i'm going to grad school this start this summer up in burlington vermont oh perfect Great. Now, um, the 20, the, so you had already done the long trail. So the 2019 AT northbound was no, you were no stranger to backpacking at that point. Right. You know, that, that first three weeks of the trail felt more familiar and it was a little easier for me to get my legs underneath me. I felt, um, just cause I'd already put 300 miles on them during like a mini through hike sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, that was the A two was my first like bigger, bigger long trail. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel like when you when you hit the trail in twenty nineteen, did you feel like you were pretty well dialed in with your gear, or did you did you learn some new things based on on being in the you know having to go on a longer hike than the long trail? I definitely ended up learning a lot on the AT, but that initial like you're saying that initial week or two, I felt a lot more dialed. I did a lot of my fumbling around on the long trail. Like, I mean, my name's Aquaman because I carried seven and a half liters onto the long trail of water. I, <laughs> I was I, wondering about that. I was, Which is funny because that's real as a reputation. Like, you can't go anywhere without, like, stepping in a puddle of water. <laughs> well, it was so funny because I've been slower on my back. And the hike up from North Adams, you're in Massachusetts and so you hit Vermont. There's a river and then there's, like, a spring and it's like, and then Vermont's soaking wet, right? And so I got all this water. It was so funny, but it's a mistake you make one time and it's easy. You just dump it all out. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. What a riot. Um, 
And what, with your gear in, in 2019, how heavy was your pack that you were carrying? My base weight was like 12 to 14 pounds on the trail. I added a few things as I went on, but it started around like 12 or 13 pounds. So I was pretty light going under the AT just because I felt comfortable with the cold weather that we were expecting down there, you know, for cold down there in March and April. And then I just felt comfortable not having any frills in my setup or any extra stuff. So I was able to cut a lot of stuff out because I realized on the long trail, I just didn't need it. Right. Like, some certain luxury items, whatever they may be. Hmm. Interesting. And then did you, are, well, I'm always curious about this too. Are you a shelter person or do you set up a tent on your own or do you do a hammock? I don't, I don't know what your, your gear, gear choice. So I was in a tent. Yeah. I was in a tent for the first 1200 miles in 2019. I ha- I sheltered a couple times, like a bit early on, but I stopped sheltering pretty quickly. And then in Pennsylvania at the like 1200 mile mark, I had ordered a hammock. I switched into my hammock and I did that all the way to Katahdin. And then on this hike, I went Massachusetts to Springer in a hammock. Okay. But obviously in the winter you need, you would need a tent or, or, or a shelter. Right. In the winter months, I was like in a tent, sleeping pad, sleeping bag, that whole setup. Yeah. And I was in shelters most nights this winter. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Stop, you look like you can ask a question. No, I just don't want to jump ahead. Um, I'm super curious about the winter prep and winter experiences. So, yeah, yeah let's pace ourselves. We can get into it. Yeah. Oh, heck yeah. yeah. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get, get there. In a minute, but just the, the hammock <laughs> versus the tent, can you just give your perspective on, on the differences? Because that's a great debate. And I'm, I've been tenting for a while, but I, I've, I've been messing around with my hammock a little bit. And I definitely feel more comfortable in the hammock and I can fall right asleep in that versus a, a tent. But can you talk a little bit about what, why you prefer the hammock? I'm about to sound like such a hammock salesman. So it, it to me, it's so much better. It's like not even, it's like not even close unless you're a stomach sleeper. Like you, you should right. be in a hammock. You should be in a hammock. It's way more versatile. You know, many campsites I showed up into the whites and I, the caretaker mm-hmm. looked at me and they were like, Oh, I'm sorry. And I went, I have a hammock and they went great. You don't need to find a flat spot. And when you're in a tent, you almost never do find a flat spot anyway. So the hammock gets you up off the ground, up off the mud, all that stuff. It's yeah. way better in the rain. You can set up your tarp while it's raining before you set anything else up. And in the morning, you can pack it all up underneath. Yeah, It might be a little true. heavier than a super ultralight tent setup. But to me, sleep is worth the wait. Like 10 out of 10 times, sleep is worth the wait. And, you know, especially on a oh, through sure. hike, you get strong enough to carry it. It's not like your str- like it's not like two pounds is going to make or break your through hike right and it's not like it's always two pounds heavier but in my eyes that weight is always worth it um hmm. and then i also like how you can be consistent about your night's sleep right so you can find two trees and when you get good at setting your hammock up it's at the same angle with the same tension every night a tent you really just don't get that unless you're camping on platforms every night right it's the ground's always tilted or whatever and you know, you'll be sliding out the side of your tent or something. And it's a lot easier to keep those things that you want to keep dry, dry when you're in a hammock, your quilts and all that stuff. I just always found it easier. Yeah. yeah. That's my, that's my big issue with the tent is exactly what you just talked about is it's fine. If I'm on a, if I'm on a platform, like I have no problem, I'll fall right asleep. But if I'm on like even, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but if, even if I'm on like a one or two degree angle, that's not completely flat, like it it gets in my head Mm -hmm. and I'm like, 
you know, oh, I'm upside down right now. Now I'm going to flip around the other side. Oh, my, you know, I'm just, I don't feel right. You feel it. So, yeah. The, and you can yeah, sit yeah. in your hammock at camp. You actually have somewhere to like sit and do your stuff. Whereas in a tent, you just end up sitting always on the ground, which is when your legs are really stiff. Like that's a little, I always found it to be a little more annoying. Funny you story. Yeah. You can elevate your sleep at night. In a ha- I'm sorry. I'm just like, oh, go off on the hammocks. You can elevate your sleep. It's like so nice. But what were you going to say? Stop. <laughs> Uh, my wife and I, when we finished our 48 together on Mount Carrigan, it was funny. There was a, a couple on top of the, they were sleeping on top of the fire tower in a hammock. So it it was two of them. And one guy, the guy was like seven, you know, six and a half, seven feet tall. And the woman was maybe like four and a half feet tall. But they, I just can't imagine being comfortable with like two people in a hammock. Does that work? They sell these double nested hammocks, so there's like two oh, really? hammocks. They do, but you end up just getting smushed together anyway. Oh, I can they, they do sell hammocks that like would fit two people, right? Yeah, your own like compartment. I don't know. <laughs> I've never interesting. Been yeah, that, that was interesting, huh? Anyway, interesting. All right, so you avoid the shelters. Um, what about the social aspect of that 2019 hike? Did you find like a group of people that were? sort of your same speed and sort of your same personality that you mesh with pretty well? 100%, 100%. I actually ended up meeting most of my like good friends from that hike. I met on Springer Mountain or at the first lean-to or like at the first town. I met a bunch of them. And I always like to do my own thing and beat on my own drum. And so we would hike together for a week or two and then I'd split off for a week or two and then we'd catch back up to one another and then we'd split off and then we'd catch back up to one another and it just sort of went like that. I wasn't like, we weren't like steadfast together the whole time, but we saw each other in big chunks throughout the entire trail, which was awesome, which was really great. That's neat. Yeah. It's neat how that happens. Ooh, and then, yeah. And then when you go, so when you got into the whites, that was the first time you had actually stepped foot in the white mountains mm-hmm. was in 2019. So you made it to Musilagi were, were the whites in Maine and that whole area. Was it, was it, exactly what you expected did it live up to your expectations the first time you you went in there yeah it just blew my mind i remember standing at lonesome lake just totally mind blown looking at franconia ridge i camped at liberty <laughs> springs i left camp at three thirty in the morning and i sunrise franconia ridge i got the little haystack like the stars were still out and then i had a beautiful day i got views through all the presidentials which was amazing and then the way i always say it is when you picture the Appalachian Trail and you close your eyes and somebody says, picture the AT, the wild, the rivers, the forest, it's beautiful, it's rugged, it's fun. When you show up to Maine, it looks just like how you would picture it in my head. It, that, that's what Maine looks like. It's just so beautiful. So mm-hmm. I, I, was, I was like over the top happy with all of it. It was, it was a blast. <laughs> Great. And then you, so you finished 2019 and then ended up finding a job in New Hampshire. And that's, I'm assuming that's where you spent, how long did it take you to do the 111? I started the 111 in the fall of 2016 after I did the long trust, started ticking away at those peaks. And then I finished about a year ago. I finished, I did Reddington and Owl's Head on my last day and finished. Okay. Which is a weird combo, but... Yeah. And do you, were you doing a lot of those overnights or were they just day hikes from, from your house? It was a mix. It was a mix. I'd say more day hikes, but there were plenty of overnights thrown in there. Um, a big thing to do in the Adirondacks, especially is hike in, set up camp, 
and then go out and back to a mountain from there. So you're not carrying all your overnight stuff up, but then you end up camping out, right? So you're sort of like day hiking, but you're hiking in with your backpacking gear. Yeah. Okay. So you're going, you did the long trail, you did the AT, you're now in New Hampshire, you're starting to do a mix of day hikes and overnights to do some peak bagging. I'm assuming this is where you started getting into the, the winter backpacking and sort of learning how to how to manage yourself in winter. Right. So I believe it was in the fall, in the late fall, early winter of 2017, where I first put snowshoes on. Um, the fall was coming and I was like, oh, darn, I have to wait till next year to keep hiking. And then I realized that people bought snowshoes and hiked in the winter. So I was like, oh, that'd be kind of cool. So it was all day hikes, 2017 and 18. And then right before the 18, <clears throat> excuse me, right before the 18 in 2019, I did my first winter overnight in the Adirondacks. So I went out on a trail I was really familiar with. I practiced, I slept on my deck the night before to like make sure my sleep system would keep me warm enough and everything. And I just went out. It was like zero degrees that night. I did the whole thing and um, made all a lot of mistakes and learned from them all. And then um, in the f- years after that, I slowly started to buy more of the equipment and make it lighter and, you know, get warmer sleeping bags and slowly start to, and this, a lot of this happened in the whites, some of it in the Adirondacks as well. But this was when I started like going on the bigger overnight, multi-night backpacking trips in the winter. Yeah. Were you mostly on solo or did you have a crew that you would go with? I think I only did like one winter overnight with a friend. I think every other winter overnight and most of the winter hikes I was doing was by myself. And through the the long trail and the AT, so it sounds like you had your crew of friends, but for the most part during the day, you would you would just do your own thing. And I'm assuming there'd be plenty of nights where you were on your own as well. What, can you talk a little bit about, like, do you, do you consider yourself more of an introvert where you're okay being alone, or do you prefer to be around a, a crew of people? No, I definitely, I definitely feel like I'm on the introverted side. I like to be alone. It doesn't really bother me. And it was, it's something I really, that I liked hiking because of that. Um, I struggled a lot with like anxiety in my life and hiking out by myself really helps me sort of sort through stuff and let some thoughts come and go in a lot more of a peaceful way. And so when I'm alone, I get that space. And so that's why I'm always just drawn to hiking alone, I think. Mm. Got it. Same. For sure. Yeah, he's... I'm probably more of an extrovert, but I, I get that same thing as like my morning runs by myself or the hikes by myself. It's sort of like a, a reset button. Right. So, right. Uh, yeah. Um, I w- was curious, so I want to get into the the southbound hike here. But before we get into that, can you talk a little bit about? So you obviously worked for a couple of years, saved up some money. You were able to take like five or six months off to do this particular hike. You know, you're in, sounds like you're in sort of a STEM field. Um, can you talk a little bit about like sort of your advice? You know, I have, I have kids in college right now and I sort of tell them, I'm like, you know, pick a, pick a field that's going to be in high demand so that you'll always, you won't have to worry about getting a job. Like you can get a job and then you can leave a job and then find a position anytime you want, or you can go to grad school or whatever, or whatever it is. But I do feel like a lot of people sort of get trapped either you know, they, they don't have, they don't never develop a skill that's in demand or they get sort of stuck in this, this like trap of like having to work to just survive. Can you talk a little bit about like, what advice do you have for people to around their education? If they do want to, I guess, 
have flexibility later on in life. Right. And that's where I think engineering was good for me was I got an engineering degree and I realized that mechanical engineering didn't really fit me working in as a mechanical engineer wasn't necessarily something that fit me super well, but the degree is really versatile, right? So having a versatile degree really helps. Um, and then I consider myself someone who, someone who lives pretty simply, right? So I figure out where I can save money and I save it there. And that's where I was able to save up for this hike was I just didn't spend money, money on a whole lot of other things. My hobbies mostly consist of hiking and rock climbing. And once you buy the gear for that, the activity itself is usually free. You need to pay for gas to get to the place. Um, and so then it comes down to, you know, the time, the timing will never be perfect. And you sort of just have to make it, make your own perfect timing. Right. Um, especially a lot of people my age, um, you know, I was in a lucky situation where I could afford to do this and not everybody's in that situation, but, um, which, you know, which is, which is hard, but the time doesn't exist unless, unless you make it. And it doesn't need to be a five or six month through hike, right? It could be something like the long trail, which is much, much shorter. Um, but I think, I don't know, it's just something that means enough to me for me to divert all my resources towards and save up for and, and all of that. So, I think it was also important for me to really think about it and think to myself, is this really a place where I want to spend all my time and money? Is that truly where I want to do it? Um, And in this case, my answer is yes. And so it's been worth taking that, that jump. Right. I hope that answers the question, but yeah. 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 And it's, there's no, there's no easy answer to that because depending on everybody you know everybody has a different situation but i think the i i hear a lot of people that sort of have that similar perspective of of you is that if you if you don't make it happen it's never going to happen and you've got to make sacrifices along the way and you've got to you've got to make some some difficult choices and you've got to make some smart decisions in order to get yourself to the point where you have that flexibility i think young people if anybody's listening, young younger people, my advice is always that the older you get, the more likely it is that you're going to be stuck with responsibilities that won't allow you to be able to have the freedom to to do things like through hiking. So do them when you can early, and you know you have a lot more time. You know, I can imagine Scott, you probably saw a bunch of like 65, 70 year old people on the on the on these long hikes where they're like, you know, oh, I wish I'd done this way earlier. Yeah. The thing I always say is everybody tells me to do it while I'm young. So I'm listening, <laughs> yes. I'm listening yeah, to the advice, exactly. right? Exactly. It's true. All right. Well, at what, some point you decided to do, to do a self-bound um, through hike. We, we, you do, did you make that decision specifically and say like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this no matter what, or were you, I guess, what was your thought? Like, how did you decide to do this, this self-bound hike? Because you must have known that, like, a lot of it's, uh, the weather is, it could, could completely ruin it for you. Right. So, it sort of started with this idea of, I, I wanted another adventure. And it started with this idea of me wanting to spend a winter outside in whatever fashion that might look like. I was thinking like, I was trying to look for places where I could drag a sled around for the winter and like load it up with stuff. I was just like, I want to spend the winter outside and just let, let it happen and see what happens. And then I was trying to figure out a way for to do it in a way that it would be fun and challenging. And then the idea, I was like, Oh, maybe I'll do the long trail this winter. 
And then I thought, well, if I'm going to do the long drive, I may as well just do the AT. Like it's longer, it's bigger. It would just be, it would, that would be awesome. So <laughs> once like it sort of snowballed into the AT and then once that idea came into my head, it really, really stuck. And I, I think I really did a good job with my expectations. Like, as you're saying, like how the weather could totally throw this whole thing off. Once I got oh, yeah. the idea in my head of how I want to do the AT in the winter, I went and did Katahdin last summer. Cause I know very well, like, I mean, I didn't make, I didn't make it to the top of Katahdin cause it's not really up to you. If you make it to the tops of these mountains in the winter, right? It's, you have mm-hmm. to be able to make the good call. And so I summoned Katahdin last winter knowing that I might show up and it might just be not doable. And then I sort of had this idea in my head that if things weren't going to work out, the weather was going to be too tough. I still wanted to spend the winter outside and I still wanted it to be an adventure. And so I was going to, you know, if I needed to make my footsteps continuous, but divert around the presidentials, the Mahusiks, whatever, which was some of the river crossings in the hundred, if I needed to do any of that, I went into that with this attitude of like, that's what it's going to take to do this. Just go have an adventure. Don't attach yourself to the idea of like, you must walk every step on the AT, even if it kills you. Cause mm-hmm. I knew how silly that would be. And I knew if my expectations were there, I might end up disappointed and with this sort of unrealistic expectation of myself, because in the end of the day, yeah. we don't get to choose the weather and how dangerous it can really be out there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. So as far as like the date when you locked it in and said, I'm doing it, how f- how far ahead of when you when you left was it that you decided that you're going to you're going to be out there for lo- at least the winter? Right. So I decided last summer that I like for sure wanted to do this and start in December at some time because I knew Katahdin opened in December. And then I found out that you can't really apply for any of that those winter sites or any of the permits until November. So I found it a good weekend where I could get a ride up there. My mom and sister drove me up there. And once I found out what weekend would work there, I just applied for the permits. I mailed everything in. They got back to me and said, December works. I booked, I think I booked two nights at Katahdin Streams to give myself a multi-day window to do Katahdin. The day that ended up being the best was the day that I was going to hike in. So I knew I'd be cutting it close anyway because you have to take the Blueberry Ledges Trail in like four and a half miles. I had to drop all my stuff that I didn't need and then start up Katahdin. So, and you know, the daylight's so limited. It's December up in Baxter, right? The sun goes down at four. And nobody staffed on that side of the park that early in the year. So you're really, in Baxter, you're alone. And then Mm -hmm. this situation, I knew I was really, really alone. And the Hunt Trail is the Hunt Trail. So... I had that all locked in and I told myself any of these days will work. But as I got closer, I knew I needed to be flexible and just pick the best weather day and give it a shot as good as, as, as best I could. Wow. Wow. And, and then, so you then, you, you do your thing around Katahdin and then you enter the, the hundred mile wilderness. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm assuming by that point that there's not a lot of people around. What was the snow snowpack like at that point? So it was... It was three or four inches of snow on the ground in Baxter. Going up Catan, I didn't quite need snowshoes, but it was like eight, nine inches of snow, and the drifts up up on the ridge were way higher, but I wasn't going to be up on the ridge with all that technical stuff in my snowshoes. Um, 
going into the 100 mile, it was not a lot of snow, a couple inches. And then I had to do two big days in a row early on in the 100 because there was a storm coming that was all like 40 degree rain. So I knew it was going to wipe out a lot of the snow, but I also knew if I get wet three days into the 100 mile, that's like a disaster waiting to happen because the temperatures were going to dip again. Yeah. So I pulled two big days and then I woke up at like two in the morning one day and did like nine miles before eight in the morning or nine in the morning. And then the end of that nine mile section, I forded my first river in the hundred and I got right to a campsite and sat in the shelter for the entire day because I couldn't afford to lose miles that day by not hiking. But I didn't want to get drenched in the rain only to have it all freeze the next day, knowing that I still had five or six, five days left in the hundred. So that rainstorm wiped out a lot of the snow at lower elevations and made the trail a lot. It was either dry trail or it was a lot of just ice, it was all ice. And then once I got back into the mountains there, it became a little more snow, but I never actually needed my snowshoes in the hundred mile. I was able to just do it in boots and spikes. How do you get your information? Yeah. So I had looked up the weather before I left and screenshotted everything, but I knew that forecast was only going to be good for a couple of days. And then I have a GPS satellite pinger, and I think one or two times in there, I um, pinged my family and had them send me a quick little rundown of the weather. Just like right. highs, lows, precip, that sort of thing, just so I could get an idea of what was gonna what was gonna be happening. Because you have to, <laughs> I had to, I had to go into the, I went into the hundred mile with, uh, I don't know exactly how much it weighed. But it was about 70 pounds. I want to reload my pack and weigh it all and see how much exactly it all weighed. But uh, it was about 70 pounds because I had to have two fuel bottles because I need to do Baxter and the 100 mile with one fuel resupply in my white gas stove. And I had to carry all my gear into the 100 because oh, yeah. you can't count on eight-day weather forecasts, right? I had to assume I might get nailed with a blizzard at some point in there. Or the temperatures will plummet. So I had to go in with my full setup. Because I was fording those rivers mm-hmm. and everything, so I couldn't leave anything behind. Going, oh, the weather will be good enough, right? You can't count on that. So I packed was really heavy going in, and I ended up carrying my snowshoes the whole way through. I didn't need them. Uh, what's the what's the is it the Kennebec River that you have to cross? What what's the big river that you have to get across, and how did you do that? So that's the Kennebec. So you get through the hundred mile and you get to Monson, and then like forty trail miles later, maybe something like that is Caratunk. Caratunk sits on the north side, the Appalachian Trail north side of the Kennebec River. In summer months, you get okay. canoed across. They have hours you get canoed across. I reached out to the ATC. They got me in touch with the guy who runs the shuttle. I gave him a call. He said, yeah, river's still open. I'll get you across. No problem. You're going to be there this day. Sure, I'll show up at 8 in the morning. We'll canoe you across. Well, that morning, it was like zero degrees or something. And there's a sandbar down the river from where you cross and that had iced up and it ice jammed the whole river. <laughs> so that morning I show up and he's like, this is the first day of the year that it's jammed up. Sorry, I can't get you across. I was like, you be kidding me. <laughs> oh, so man. I got driven around to, what is, it, is that main 27 or main five where Kingfield is in Stratton yeah. in the Carabasa Valley. And I got dropped okay. off at the edge of this snowed in dirt road. I hiked six and a half miles in on this dirt road to hit the AT. I was in my snowshoes for that. I hit the AT. I hiked 17 and a half miles northbound to hit the south end of the river. And then I turned around and backtracked. So I, I had to backtrack like 24 and a half miles of hiking 
to get those miles on the south wow. end of the river. Yeah, that's dedication. So it was like two days out of my two like full days of hiking out of my way. But I when I started backtracking on the AT, I dropped some food. I like put some food up in a tree. And like mm-hmm. I had checked the weather, so I didn't need my snowshoes, or my ice axe, or any of that. I knew the terrain, so I left all that at a lean to, and then just did the outback yeah. with a little bit of a lighter load, and then just grabbed my stuff <laughs> and kept going. But funny enough, I get to the south edge of the river; they must have opened the dam, and the ice jam had cleared. It was perfectly good to go across in a canoe. But oh, I was, so you could have just waited a day. Yeah, but I had no idea. But I could have. So I stood on the south side yeah. of the river. I was like, oh my god, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! And then at this point, so you're carrying. Um, so you, I saw your gear list, and I'll, I'll link the video in the show notes because you do have. He, he does. Scott does have a, a YouTube channel where he's got some good videos on there, especially that gear video. But you, you're carrying an 85 liter Os, Osprey yep. <laughs> backpack, and then you've got a four season tent you're using, right? I did. I used that until the whites. I used that until the whites. Okay. Yep. All right. Um, so you're carrying heavy gear at that point. Um, very heavy. So you get through the the hundred mile wilderness. You make it through the the river situation, and then you're into the the Bigelows and, and Old Spec, and then into Mahusik. At what point were you feeling a little bit confident, like you know, with this weather situation and the ground coverage with snow, like I may actually be able to get into the whites without having to do any crazy sort of redirects off the trail. Right. So that's where I was just sort of sitting there waiting. I was like, when is this, when is a huge blizzard just going to like make this thing turbo hard? Because it was already insanely hard. Right. And I was just like, when is this blizzard going to slow me down to six miles a day, seven miles a day. And, you know, that just didn't happen in December. You know, I mean, there's snow up in the big lows and the crockers and, you know, I'm in my snowshoes and I'm trudging through snow, but it's not waist deep snowdrifts at that point. Right. Which it very well could be. It was like maybe two feet of snow at the tops of the mountains and like the thickest parts, maybe a little more on like the saddlebacks in some spots. But otherwise, you know, I'm on a foot of snow most of the time, like climbing or climbing up the crockers and stuff like that. And how long had you been on trail by the time you got to the Mahusiks? I got to the Mahusiks right in early January. Yeah. I remember. So almost a month. Yeah. Just about a month. It took me about a month, a little over a month to get through Maine. So I realized. (laughs) Just for the listeners. I mean, that's a long time to hike. Just to show what uh, Scott is or was committed to here. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) It was it was a headspace. It was very much like this headspace I've never been in in my life. Because I'll go back and oh, watch yeah. those videos I took, and I'm like, that just looks like too much. That's insane. But I, yeah. I was I was ready for it every day. Wow. And you didn't see you maybe ran into a couple of day hikers. That's about it. I ran into th- a group of three day hikers on the Crockers at the 200 mile mark. I ran into like two or three more day hikers on Old Spec those are the only day hikers I saw in Maine. I saw between Katahdin and route two in New Hampshire, I saw seven moose. And I think I saw like five to seven day hikers. I saw just about as many moose as day hikers. (laughs) Did you, um, what was the adjustment to the cold like for you both physically and mentally? And I've been, it's kind of fun. I've been like following a couple of 
there's a couple of people like uh, influencers on YouTube and there's this whole idea around, you know, cold therapy and the whole idea goes back to like when we were primitive people, you know, there was there was populations of people that survived in the cold for extended periods of time and there's this idea that like exposing yourself to cold conditions brings back whatever primitive sort of instincts that we have as humans and you know, I don't know how much of that is sort of just nice marketing material for some of these special diets or, or fitness routines or whatnot, but can you talk a little bit about the effects of cold for being in cold conditions for an extended period of time like that? Because it's very rare that somebody is dealing with that unless you're on like an expedition like you were on. Right. So it was hard for me to tell whether I actually had any physical adaptations, but I can say that mentally you do adjust to it. My mental adjustment took some time, but I got to the point where I expected to be cold every day. I expected not to be able to take more than a 10 minute break. I expected putting on my gear in the morning to be cold and miserable. Like those things just became the norm. My face was always cold from the wind and ice and stuff. And I, I was always dealing with that. So to me, it was more of a headspace because I'm not, I, I have no idea if I actually had any physical adaptations, but you also get a lot better at managing it. I think you get lots of little things like my routine in the evening was so dialed, the order with which I did everything. I was so good at making sure that I only did take my gloves off if I ever did for a very minimized amount of time. I was, I had, I found out the way to sit in my sleeping bag with it all around me in the best way so that my back and legs wouldn't get cold while I was sitting. Like so many little things like that, like the order in which I did things, the order in which I de-layered in the evening was even dialed so that I was making sure I was cooking all my food at the same time as I was changing out of my layers at the right time where I wasn't putting any of my sweat from the day into my dry clothes at the end of the day. Right. So to, for an example, this might be hard to understand. For an example, I'd get to camp, I'd drop my stuff, I'd grab my water bottles, grab my ice axe, and go to the water source without changing anything first. Because I'm still sweating from the day, I don't want to let that moisture wick off me and cool down a little bit before I change into my dry layers. Because I don't want to carry any of my moisture into those layers for camp to keep them dry. Because you can't dry anything out ever in these situations. Nothing will ever dry out. Even if you hmm. sleep with it it just ends up being still damp so it was something like that where i made i made sure at the end of the day i didn't change for 20 minutes so that when i did change i was fully dry and void of moisture getting into my other clothes so that day after day when i put those on i actually stayed warm at camp right interesting so i've found it virtually so i've i've done a little bit of winter backpacking one of the things that is most difficult for me is I found it virtually impossible to keep my socks in my boots from getting wet. So, I mean, my system is that I, you know, I just bring an extra pair of socks for the next day. I'll, t you know, I'll take them off and, and, you know, I'll put the boots in my sleeping bag. Can you talk a little bit about how did you manage that? Did you just live with wet feet or that can't, you can't sustain that? No. So this was, this was the one thing that, here was my problem with this. I'll say this before I start explaining what I did. If I couldn't practice for any of this stuff in the fall or the summer, because it's not cold enough, you can't like prepare for any of this stuff. So last winter, I didn't really know I was going to do this. 
I would have spent way more time tinkering with this whole system, my footwear system, if I had I known this. But this is what I did. This is what worked for me. I was carrying eight pairs. Of, and some of this advice came from the hiking biking. He did something slightly different than I did. I carried eight pairs of socks with me, two dedicated pairs of socks to wear at camp. And then I would wear three pairs of socks while I was hiking. Uh, liner and two very thick wool socks. And then I would wear a vapor barrier all, over all of that. A vapor barrier, just like a little sort of semi-waterproof layer over all my socks to keep some of the moisture from getting to the boot. And then I would usually wear toe warmers in my sock layers because every morning I was putting on something moist and it was really hard to keep everything dry. So I would sleep in my dry socks, sleep with all my damp layers next to me. In the morning, I'd wake up, put those damp layers on, put the toe warmers on, put the vapor barrier on, put them in my boots, which I've been sleeping with, tie everything up, and then... Once I've gotten my boots on, I've got about 20 minutes before I've got to start walking. Otherwise, my feet get way too cold. I need to get my blood flowing into my feet. Um, the extra set of dry hiking socks usually came out on my last day or two of the stretch. Or on a particularly cold day, I would put those socks on. I made sure I always had a dry set for a particularly cold day and a dry set for camp. When I went to sleep every night, right before I went to sleep, I would take my boots, scrape any extra ice and snow off of them, put them in plastic bags, and they went inside of my sleeping bag with me. So the moisture from the boot, when I heated them up with my body heat, wouldn't get to my sleeping bag, and it sort of soggied my boot up, but it was just the best I could do. In the morning, that's why I just had to throw them on, get moving quickly to keep my boots sort of warm enough. Because the other thing that was really frustrating was, if your hands are cold, you know, you take off your glove, you shove your hands in your armpits or you throw a hand warmer in but if your feet are cold they're under gaiters rain pants boots snowshoes three pairs of socks like they're really hard to get to so you want to make sure they're warm enough so that's where once i got to new hampshire i sort of just said this is silly let me just pack toe warmers out every for every single day of the stretch because this is not worth losing a toe over half a pound of toe warmers right yeah yeah what kind of boots are you running with there during this stretch i'm just curious so I was wearing Solomon Tundra Pros, I believe they're called, for yep. um, through Maine. But then my feet got a little bigger, which they do when you through hike, and I wanted to be able to put more socks on. And had trouble ordering the right size of those, and I couldn't find them in the store. So I went to the REI in North Conway, and I bought size 13 wide Zambolin Vios, which are just an uninsulated leather winter boot. But the 13 wide let me put all those socks in there. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, which helped me stay. That's great. Interesting, because we talked about winter hiking a little bit, and, and this is for day hiking, so I can afford, I don't have to worry about moisture, but my advice to people over the in the winter day hikes has been to go with like a liner sock or a midweight sock and make sure that you're not cutting off circulation by double layering up. So I would assume that you would probably have to manage the making sure that whatever socks you're putting on can't be too tight because there's a um, diminishing return when you have too much tightness around your feet because the circulation cuts off. This was something I learned along. This is one of those cold weather things that I learned along the way big time. Um, The one good thing about the Zamberlin boot was it was sort of hard on the top. It was quite strong structure. 
So anything I strapped onto it, snowshoes, crampons, microspikes, didn't press down too much on my foot. That, combined with me not tying anything too tightly at all, gave, the, especially the top of my foot, plenty of room to let blood flow go around my foot. And then all my socks were of the right size so that nothing was constricting my foot in any way. So I had no constriction points. And that is something that to me made one of the biggest differences of all is once I started moving and I had no constriction anywhere on my foot, if I tied everything properly and put my snowshoes on just tight enough where they'd stay on, but they didn't press anywhere on my foot too hard, my feet stayed warm. I I sort of figured that out. Interesting. So you're dialing all this stuff in in the first month or so. Um, Were you able to just keep yourself occupied? I know you said that you're fine doing solo hiking and whatnot, but there's got to be a feeling of isolation that, that, that gets to you. Did you struggle mentally at all or were you, were you occupied enough with figuring out how to dial in your gear and planning out your, your day to day routes that, that it didn't, didn't um, cause you any mental stress? No, it definitely was. It was really, really mentally challenging to be out there alone. Um, just because I, I wouldn't even see day hikers or anyone. There was just nobody out there. And so, yeah, you know, a lot of the day you're focused doing things and it's really mentally exhausting, like you're saying, to be paying attention to all those little things and picking up on. Um, but being out there day after day like that, you know, when you're having a hard moment, there's nobody there to cheer you up and you can't count on that. You have to count on yourself in that moment to pick yourself up. And that's extremely mentally exhausting. And it's a reason I took a lot of days off and up there. I ended up going, getting through New England. I think I took 12 zero days, which is no mileage days um, where I ended up just resting inside somewhere. And that was probably more physical than mental and sometimes weather related, but I needed days where, I sat in a room and wasn't thinking about anything all day, like thinking about staying warm or any of that. And also where I could chat with some of my friends and call my family and do that. It really gave me a big boost to do those things because you just don't have access to that on the trail. And it, it was exhausting mentally. Yeah, I bet. Um, curious you know we'll we'll exit Maine and talk about new hampshire in a minute but i am curious when you got into the mahoosic so you're coming down the arm which must have been an adventure um but then going through the notch can you talk a little bit about going down the arm going through the notch and then you know sort of making it out to you know rattle river i have to assume that at that point you're sort of like oh wow this is like a real possibility like i can make this happen yeah so i i sort of in my head, sorry, I feel like I'm going real roundabout with these questions you're, you're asking me, but that's um, fine. Yeah. In my head, before I started, it was like there were a few big things on this trail that I lost sleep over. It was Katahdin, the 100 mile, the Mahusiks, the presidentials, right? Like these were sections that really f- was, were really <laughs> fear inducing. You can probably see it on my face, right? Like these were sc- these were scary sections to think about. And so going into the Mahusiks, I had gotten off at South Arm Road into Andover. I took a zero. So I had 50 miles from South Arm Road through to Route 2. And I was planning on it five days. So I was trying to average 10 a day. So actually, when I went down the arm and through the notch, it was a tiring, long, exhausting, hard day. But I had done 
enough miles a day before to afford myself five miles that day or six miles, whatever it is from spec pond lean to to full goose, which is pretty much over the arm, down the arm, through the notch, and then you climb right to the lean to. So Mm -hmm. I left early in the morning. I went down the arm slowly, but I made my way down. And then getting through the notch, I took a break before and I knew it was just going to turn into this wrestling match with the snow. And that's when I really realized how heavy my pack was, was I was taking it off and trying to like move it without it being on my back, like drag it and pull it and lift it through these little holes. And it it was so exhausting. I mean, I was working for 10 or 15 minutes sometimes just to go six feet. Like it would take me like 10 minutes just to go like six to 10 feet, just because getting up on these ledges when there's nothing to grab onto is really, really tough. I got really, really lucky that someone had clearly done a northbound Mahusa traverse in the week before I went in there and there wasn't really any a lot of fresh snow, I could see very faint footsteps through Mahusik Notch. So mm-hmm. I knew that someone had stepped somewhere and that it was a safe place to step. Because otherwise I I had planned I had budgeted like four or five hours to get through there. Because I thought there was gonna be a lot of me taking my pack off so it was more agile. And like stepping in certain areas and poking a lot and testing everything out. And then once I figured out what was safe, I'd come back and grab my bag and do it. I didn't have to do any of that because I knew that someone else had walked. Oh, they walked on this big rocky mound. It must be safe to walk on because I see footsteps there. So I got extremely lucky and it still took me three hours to go through the notch. But I got lucky. It was, I was, I was literally verbally thanking this mystery person for doing this. So <laughs> if you did a Mahusa traverse in late December, thank you. <laughs> well, it's exactly. funny you say that too, because you, you're so right about um, it, when you're in a conditions where there's, it's like early snow, but there's enough snow in the ground. Sometimes like, especially when you're in like a scree field or rock scrambling and things like that. Sometimes you're bi- I'd rather be in a situation where you've got a lot of snow. So you're not poking around to fall into those crevices to figure out like what's safe to step in and what's not safe to step in. Like you, sometimes that can take a lot longer than it would if you just got hit with like two feet of snow. So yeah, I, I don't know what the optimal amount of snow to go through Mahusik notches, but I made it through, you know, may, would it have been easier if there was a two foot storm beforehand? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but yeah, there were some spots where, you know, it was also that a lot, a lot of times where that gave me trouble, whereas there was like a foot and a half of snow on the ground in most spots. And so I'd be in my snowshoes cause it was the easier to walk, but then it still wasn't deep enough. So I'd like trip on roots that were underneath the ground or I'd slip on a big ice sheet that was underneath the snow because I was sometimes getting through to there. The snow was thinner. So all the conditions just have their own difficulties. You just have to manage all of it. <laughs> yeah. And Stomp, I don't know if you've been through the Mahoosics, but like in Scott, you can probably talk about this, but I would assume, so you get through the notch and then you sort of take that left mm-hmm. To head up to the shelter, and you still got to climb with seventy pounds on your back with that metal runs. You've got to climb up that that ladder. Uh, that must have been brutal. I mean, but at least you get to the shelter pretty quickly. That's the thing, you know. It was like a mile and a half from there to the shelter. A mile, some it's something yeah. really close, but I mean, these uphills were at best a mile an hour less. Like the, these were 
I ended up in tears on small uphills because of just it was so exhausting and mentally like you know it's the end of the day it's been this didn't happen in the Mahusics because it was a shorter day but in so many spots like this happened later in the Mahusics I had to pull a 15 mile day to make up some of that mileage you know it's dark it's late I'm going uphill I'm like two miles from camp but I'm fully aware it's going to take me two hours and mentally wrapping my head around that when it's already 4.30 and dark and I have two more hours of night hiking, it just would take a lot of mental power to calm myself down and not lose it because it was it would have just been all too easy to lose it in, in a situation like that, which was something I had to deal with on an almost daily basis. Wow. Yeah. Well, then eventually you get to Rattle River and then – is the sh- it was the hostel open at that point? Were they, did they no, were able to stay there? No, but my dad actually had planned to come up and visit me that weekend. He wanted to come up to the Whites and visit me. And so that – he picked me up from Route 2. Um, okay, so you ate the Gorham Award. I got to you – know, we stayed in like North Conway or something and, and we hung out into the store, like resupplied, zeroed, did all of that. And it felt really good to be through the Mahusics. I think one of the scariest parts of this <laughs> entire trail was coming down Goose Eye. It was terrifying. There's a Goose little rock awesome. scramble. Goose Eye's Oh, yeah, beautiful. right off the summit. I got blown onto my hands and knees. I came, came down the Goose Eye Trail? With the okay. ladder and then the rebar, yeah. Okay, on the Carlo side. On the Carlo. Yeah, and then gotcha. Carlo. Oh, yeah. The- oh, yeah. Oh, oh, it's crazy. Gosh. That... Yeah. That was a really intense section. I mean, I was on goose eye, blown <laughs> out of my hands and knees by the wind. It was yeah. freezing. And then I descend goose eye. I had to throw my pack off that ledge, take my right. ice axe out with my crampons and down climb it. And then yeah. Carlo Cole was coming up. It's like you do like a hundred feet of uphill and it's, you're like rock climbing. It's, mm. it was, cr- it was so intense. So, I mean, my after the moose, my abs are sore, my shoulders, my arms, I'm sore everywhere from that. It was like, it was really full body exercise. <laughs> so yeah. when you, when you got into North Conway, was that where you did your sort of first dumping of gear or changing gear around? So that's where I dumped the four season tent, which was five pounds. And I got a three season mm-hmm. tent that was a one person tent that weighed like two pounds. So I saved myself a ton of weight because I, I was like, I'm not sleeping in this thing and I'm not sleeping like above a tree line in a storm. Like I don't need this ridiculous heavy tent. Uh, I just found that. It- Did you ever have to set up above tree line at all? No, no. I was always able to get no. to a covered spot out of the wind for the most part. So you took, but you took that four season tent with the idea that just in case I get stuck and I need to set up above tree line, I have it. Well, that, was that your thought? Yeah, it wasn't necessarily above tree line, but it was like, you know, in a blizzard or some crazy wind or a snowstorm or on the off chance I do need to set up in a spot that's near above tree line in a windy position, like this tent will be great. Right. I just found that not to be the reality of what was happening. Um, and I was like, okay, well this shelter will do for, for, for what I've been going through. Um, and cutting the weight I felt would have was huge. So I cut, I cut that weight. I cut a couple extra things I was carrying. Um, Small things like I switched from, I was carrying two hydro flasks and a Nalgene. I got rid of one of the hydro flasks and carried two Nalgenes and a hydro flask. It saved me some weight and also allowed me to put two hot water bottles in my sleeping bag at night to stay warm instead of one. Oh, see, that's um, what I was going to ask you. 
how before we ditched the tent, I just was wondering how your nights were settling in with the tent and how you were staying warm, what you were sleeping on. Maybe just talk briefly about that, how you dealt with condensation, you know, things like that. Right. So uh, when I was in the shelters, I would just sleep in the shelter. I wouldn't set anything up that helped with condensation Um, because my sleep system was warm enough where I didn't have to set like a tent up or anything around it. And then when I set up in my tent, you know, I was in my tent, I'd open all the vents on everything. And I was on, I would, I had a thermarest. So I put on my thermarest, just like the flat, like foam pad. And then I had a Cetus Summit X-Therm over that, like the large version. So it's an R rating of Mm -hmm. like seven, that, that sleeping pad. And then I had a Western Mountaineering Lynx, which is a negative 10 degree bag. And then I'd sleep with all my electronics, my boots, clothes, everything inside. And then I would sleep in on cold nights, on the coldest nights, I would sleep in two to three pairs of wool socks and my down booties, two pairs of leggings, down pants, and then like three base layers up here. And then I had like a buff and a hat that were specifically dry for camp. So I slept no in all that joke. in my negative 10 degree bag with two boiled Nalgene's worth of water. In yeah, there. that's that's pretty epic. I've had like one or two nights in situations like that. And it is that's a tough night's sleep, man. It's just Did like you ever get a sense. solid night's sleep? I slept like a rock. <laughs> I slept very well. <laughs> oh, I would sleep for 10 to 11 hours a night. I would like Holy pass Lord. out at six or seven and wake up at like five in the morning. Wow. Uh, did you ever struggle like going back to your early days of, of through hiking when you first started? Did you struggle learning to sleep on trail? Because I found like I used to struggle and then I don't know what happened, but like it was like a switch. All of a sudden I just realized like mentally I don't have to worry about it. Like I can just fall asleep. I don't know what happened, but I I learned to just sleep outside when originally when I first started the first few times I couldn't do it. It definitely took me a sec. Like those early days I remember like anything rustles in the leaves like it's a bear for sure right whereas you know slowly with time i got used to the sounds of the woods at night and i got used to sleeping on some on level ground or in a damp sleeping bag or whatever have you it it may be it it just came with time and so by the time i hit this trail i felt like i was more mentally prepared to just jump right into that yeah Got it. All right. Well, then you get back on trail in Rattle River. So you must have assumed like, okay, now I'm going to be in the whites. I'm going to see way more people. So you at least don't have to worry about the isolation as much. How was it going through the uh, the whites in the, in, I guess it was what? So if I look at the dates here, you were like January 9th is when you started, started up. going through. Yep. So I didn't see anyone that first day. I saw a handful of people the next day going doing the whole like Carter Wildcat Traverse, um, mm-hmm. which that was a, I had a really mentally tough morning that morning because when I woke up it was cold and I had gotten some freezing rain the night before and then it was going to be like twenty below on the Carters that day and just my head was already in Pinkham Notch. My head was like, "How are you going to get there? It's so far. Yeah. It's so rugged." And I realized I was like, you can't think about that. You're thinking too much. Like, just unzip your sleep, Meg. You know what you need to do. Just start moving. You'll get there. It was a beautiful day. Um, Coming down off the Wildcats was full on. Coming down off the Wildcats was was intense. Um, Ending the day, exhausted. What is it, like 15, 14 miles? 
from the imp all the way to the pinkum notch like i'm at the end of the day the sun's going down and i'm going down some of the steepest stuff on the at and it's just all ice and snow and i'm just like so mentally focused so i zeroed the day after that because of the weather just wasn't good prezi weather you know like 70 below washington or something and um it's nice to talk about other people who've been to the whites because yeah. just yeah when i say that to people they're like what do you mean it was so i'm like that's what happens about washington it's 70 below exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i zero the next day and i got really really lucky the time we worked out i had a friend who could come up and do half the presidentials with me he was going to meet me halfway through the day and do the presidents oh, with me and i had another friend super cool. who heard i was gonna be in the president he's like I have got to come up and see you on the ridge. Like, this is too cool to miss. So I hiked over Madison and slept at the Valleyway. Madison was pretty wicked. Madison was cold and really windy and a total whiteout. It was intense. Um, Up Osgood to Madison? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Up breaking breaking all of Osgood to Madison. It's tough. (laughs) Holy moly. Breaking Osgood up Madison and then getting thrashed around by the winds up there because the heavy pack when i have that pack on and the winds blow like i am like a rag doll like when you hear a big gust coming you just have to turn plant your dragon poles duck your head and just take it because trying to hike through some gusts i would get knocked over so i learned how to manage that and then i slept at the valleyway that night the next morning i woke up and i had i had like a day and a half I knew I had enough time to get over Madison, and then the next day I had to shoot all the way to Crawford Notch because the next day it was going to be another one of those 80 below days or something. Mm-hmm. So I had to do this like 18 and a half or almost 19 mile day. So I wake up in the morning and I start up, you know, going from Madison Hut, going around Adams, and then I had a buddy meet me at Thunderstorm. My buddy stayed at the RMC Hut and met me at Thunderstorm Junction, and he brought me some water and food, said hi went his way and then i started the traverse around jefferson which was one of the most intense things on this entire trail was getting around mount jefferson i mean i don't know if you've been around there in the winter on the gulf side trail it is the cairns get spaced out the snow fields are big like yeah you'll spin 360 degrees you see white you see nothing else Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the snowfield over there is probably the worst, and it's it's the most disconcerting of all of them, I think, in the whites that I've been in. I mean, I've been Star Lake, I've been in, I, but I think Jefferson is the one that really just is. I like to go above. I like to go high on it because it's just it's just nerve wracking, and um, coming in that way is it's a cool experience. And I, I've done the same thing your buddy did is I've stayed at the Hots of the RMC and then gone over to Jefferson and come back across. But most of the time I've gone through the snowfield, it's it's already people have gone across it. So, you know, like, OK, here's where I'm going. But I'm guessing maybe you didn't have that luxury. You might have been one of the early people to go across. I was pretty early. There were faint footsteps, like the first two or three steps into the snowfield. And then I could sort of see on the other side, like where I was aiming for. So I just straight shot it right across. Um, that wasn't so bad. There was one moment where I ended up in this. It wasn't one of the snowfields, but it was just this big white void. And I ended up like I saw a cairn and so I started taking it. But I realized really once I got like one or two cairns, I realized like I'm heading into the Great Gulf. Like this is not the AT. Yes. So I turned right around. I had my GPS out and I realized like I was just like a couple hundred feet below the trail. So I popped right back up. Didn't find any signs or cairns. 
but I had my GPS out and it was like, you're on, I was like, I'm on the trail. And so the good thing about that section is when it does get spaced out the cairns and it does get really hard to navigate, the trail goes really straight. Like the trail is a completely straight shot. So I just walked straight and I just kept Mm. going straight. The thing that was tough was, as you know, it's really bouldery and rocky below there. And so when you, you know, every third or fourth step, I'm falling up to my thigh in snow and then you have to wrestle out of it and keep walking and you know, you're switching between terrain so much. I didn't really have, I didn't have my snowshoes on because you're just like flipping back and forth between this terrain. So you're falling into the snow and wrestling through. And it was pretty slow going around there until I got back onto like the windswept rock and then I could keep moving a little faster. Um, so that was a really intense, like couple miles there. Um, any issues with your electronics with the cold? No, no. I got an iPhone right before I left, and I swear they did something with this battery because I never had it die on me in the cold. I have no idea. <laughs> I have Same no with idea. your GPS. Oh, you were using no, not, not a dedicated GPS, but a, an iPhone. I had a I had a Garmin Inreach. Okay, and that linked that linked to my iPhone. Gotcha. Okay. Right. So I would keep it warm, and then I would just like if I needed to take it out, put it right back if I needed to. Right. Okay. Um, and so I was, I found my way clean through that part, except for that one break off where I went like 0.1 off and then I came right back up. And then, um, what was I going to say? Yeah. Looking back now, I was like, oh, I probably like, I got the inReach mini. I was like, oh, I wish I just got a full big inReach just to all have it in one thing. But I also, the, that day on Washington, it was like 20 degrees, the high. I mean, the wind chills were lower, but. That wasn't. I wasn't worried about any of my electronics dying in in those in that temperature, because um, they hadn't failed me in way colder temps up to that point. So I felt pretty good about it. And then, you know, the thing was that visibility up there that day. You're seeing one or two cairns ahead at a time, and it's windy, and so you know it's still mentally exhausting. I'm like looking through this little slot in my gear, my, yeah. all my stuff, just like cairn spotting all day. And then my friend met me at the top of the Jewel Trail, and. We did the oh, whole rest of the day together. We finished at like so, like eight thirty at Crawford Notch, something like that. It was it was a long day. Yeah. Did you make him take you to the hot tub at the Omni Hotel right <laughs> afterwards? <laughs> I wish. I wish. No, he just went right into North Conway and crashed somewhere, and then um, I zeroed the next day as well. Yeah. And then you you go right into the so you zero you're you're getting. Some rest, and then you have to go into the next fun part, which which is the uh, the Pemi, Pemi wilderness and that whole area, the Pemi, Garfield Ridge. Yeah, the Pemi was a tough stretch because I mean I've been I I've been on all that stuff in the winter, and so I knew it was going to be unbroken trail, whipping winds, like and there was that there was a big blizzard coming on Martin Luther King weekend, so that's when I went through this stretch. So I got to Ethan Pond. I think it was like eight below when I left the trailhead that day to hike in and I wake up it's like I asked the person in the hut the next morning it was like 15 below that night or something so it was cold and then you know but all that trail I think the Ethan Pond trail was like sort of broken but not fully broken out but then going from the hut like up was fully broken and I cut off trail and went to Gio for the night so I go over to Gio and I wake up the next morning in this raging blizzard. Um, that was the day Washington gusted at 140. 
and it dropped like 15 inches of snow in Washington or something. So I have enough food. I packed a ton of food for this section because I was fully prepared for like, if you can't get back over Yeo or South Twin or something, like just plop it in your tent and ride it out. Because yep. I kept myself enough food for that. And I knew also like, I've had to do it before in the winter, bail off the backside of any of those two. Is that also Route 2 back there? Whatever it is, whatever that road is back there, like where you access like Garfield and and um, Galehead Hud and North. Yeah, North that's route, route 3. Route 3, it's Route 3. So I, yeah. I was like, or if I need to bail back down to the Hud, I was like ready to do all those things, right? But I threw my goggles on and I <laughs> went across Geo in this blizzard and... Then I started breaking trail to South Twin. South Twin was the windiest spot probably for me on this whole trail. Um, I started getting to the summit and the trees started shrinking. And I realized, I was like, I don't know if I can walk over, like, over this right now. So I just started crawling to stay down so the wind wasn't. So I just started crawling through the snow like to get up to the summit. And then I knew the summit. It's like you can get over the summit by staying in between those rocks and bracing with your arms. So that's what I did. So I put my trekking poles around my wrist so I didn't have to hold them. And then I just like one step at a time with like my hands on the rocks was like bracing myself and like walking over the summit because I knew it was short, but I got over it. It was really windy. It was really intense. It was, it was, it was wild. And then the descent was fine because of a lot of the fresh snow and the snow drifts. It just took me a long time to get to the Garfield hut because it was such thick snow. Yeah. Wow. And the trees are shaking and it's just, it was a messy, windy. And then the next day, um, so I, I had to, that was one of the few nights I had to melt snow on the trail was at Garfield. I didn't even bother getting through the ice and snow to the spring that night or even trying. So I get to the lean to, I melt snow, I rest up. And the next day I was like, oh, it's gonna be really cold on Franconia Ridge. Like this might, this might not go well. (laughs) Because after those blizzards all come through, it sucks all the air down. And it's still windy, but it's really cold. So yeah. I start up in the morning. I start really early because I know that I'm going to be making like three quarters of a mile an hour over on the Garfield Ridge, right? It was so slow. It was so thick snow. Like in my snowshoes, I was like coming up to my thighs sometimes in snow. Yeah. Wow. I can't imagine going up Garfield Ridge. I just can't imagine going up with a, like a 60 pound or even a 50 pound. Like I don't know how much you're carrying, but like. Uh, like I mean, me and Stomp yeah. were, we were cracking going up that 60. in the summer in our, our, our day, day packs. It was like so 55, 60 imagine. pound bag at that point because wow. I'd eaten all that food and had the fuel. And yeah, so it was slow. It was just slow. It was so, it was so slow and in the dark. And, you know, when you hit those thick snow drifts and your snow, your snowshoes under two and a half feet of snow and you're just like wrestling. And then you start climbing and climbing in the snow, you know, if you're not careful, one step forward is you're sliding back. So I'm like kicking snow out of the way and like all this just to get one or two steps in. Finally, the sun's up and I'm pushing up to Franconia Ridge and I hit the Skookum Truck Trail Junction right above Treeline. Just after that steep ledge, too, that you have to ascend. Oh, yeah. Really steep. And I always take a break before Treeline and gear up so i take i took off my damp hat damp buff and put on my dry hat and dry buff and to me in my head also logistics wise 
the goal is to get into town today. So at this point, dry clothes go on. Whatever's dry comes on, goes on. So I'm throwing all my layers on. I'm throwing two hand warmers in each mitten. I got foot warmers on. I got two pairs of leggings on underneath my rain pants. I've got every layer on. I've got my buff, my hat, like every layer is on my head. And I checked and the wind chill is supposed to be like 35 or 38 below. It was going to be like 30 to 40 below up there. And I break tree line and I start walking and I realize very quickly, like there's like a 99% chance that this just doesn't happen. But I said, mm-hmm. let me see. Let me see how it goes. Let's, let's see how getting up Lafayette goes. But I knew that once you get a little further away from the Skookum truck, your bail route is now past Greenleaf. And I didn't feel good about bailing past Greenleaf because that's really exposed to the wind. Oh, yeah. So I'm pushing up, I'm pushing up, I'm pushing up, you know, ducking behind rocks to take breaks. I'm getting blown by the wind. I'm like fumbling. And I realized in, in 10, 15 minutes, I realized there's no way that this is happening. In, this, in these conditions and I turn around come down go down the scoop truck and head into the hostel that I booked for the night to just regroup because I had two options there I had pitch my tent somewhere and ride it out and go over the next day or just get into town and take a second because this stretch has already been like really really I mean I had been through the 15 below the blizzard like all that it was really intense so I just made the call to come down into town knowing I'm going to have to come 3,000 feet back up and do it. But I made that call. Smart. You have to. Yeah, I had to. Yeah, you can't play around. And then as far as the... So you get into town. How do you reconnect to the show? Are you sort of like religious about like I have to reconnect where I started? Or would you just go up Old Bridal and go down to where you you left it and then come back up or how does that work when you, when you have to be like that? Right. So I thought about it. I was like, okay, well, should I come up old bridal and come down and reconnect? And I was like looking, I was like mapping it out. And I realized with how far down I was going to come like towards like North off Lafayette to go back up over it, to reconnect my footsteps. I realized it was just easier to come back up the Skookum truck. So that's what I did. So the next day I actually, slack packed it so because it was supposed to be still super windy and i was like i gotta climb three thousand feet back up and there i was like i'm just gonna do this in one day drop oh, yeah, that makes total drop sense of my yeah. overnight gear yeah. and i was so glad that i did because it made the climb so much faster right i'm used to carrying a 60 pound bag i got 20 pounds on my back now just winter day hiking stuff i flew up the ridge and then when the wind was slamming me on the ridge i don't have a 60 pound bag on my back anymore it's all closed and tight up and it's 20 pounds so I didn't get blown around so much so it made going over the ridge feel much more comfortable and safer and then I was able to do the ridge that day it was much better the visibility was good for the most part came down Liberty Springs and got back into the hostel I stayed at the notch nice did you at that point so once you get through there and you're really looking at Moose Lock and then you know the southern part of New Hampshire is no joke I mean cube and smarts in that whole area is is still pretty rugged but going yeah. into vermont did you feel like at that point like okay i actually have this like now it's just a matter of you know one foot in front of the other and i'm really past the dangerous parts where the weather could completely throw everything off so that's where yeah i felt like once once i coming down off musalak was a big win for me like 
a huge milestone. I felt like I'd gotten past a lot of the stuff that really, really could throw a wrench, I felt like, in this whole thing. Um, or I guess could force me to work around sections, right? Um, working through the rest of New Hampshire was fine. You know, there were a lot of sections of unbroken trail, but there was nothing I hadn't dealt with before. And it was just sort of, okay, I've been here. I've been doing this. This is okay. And then Vermont, Vermont, I think could have had a lot more snow than it did when I went through. There was still a lot of unbroken snow because what I learned is those people don't take the AT up those mountains in the winter. They just, it's all unbroken trail. (laughs) And Vermont, Vermont kicked my butt. Vermont really kicked my butt in a totally different way than the whites in Maine did. But I never felt like Vermont was really hard and really intense, but it wasn't intense like the presidentials or Franconia Ridge or the Mahusics were, right? It wasn't this intense where I was like afraid. It was this intense where I was like, this is just difficult and I must get through it. It just hmm. take it's just exhausting me. There was thick snow. There was an ice storm that bent all the trees over the trail, and I couldn't find the trail. I was losing the trail all the time because the blazes are spaced out, and I'm like mm. kicking and clawing and crawling through these frozen trees, and um, it was still pretty cold. Oh, and, and and at this point, also, I think this is about like the two month mark almost. I'm I'm wiped. Like my my head my my mental energy is really depleted. And I was having a really hard time pushing. Did you? Forward. How close did you come to bailing? Uh, or at what point did you come the closest to just saying, "Like I'm not going to keep going"? Vermont, Vermont, Vermont. Vermont. I, I never really cons- like was like. I think I might need to quit. That never entered my head. But I wondered how long, much longer I could keep doing this. I, I was like, I really seriously looked at it. And I was like, I don't know how much longer my body and mind can take this beat down. What do you think, what is it about, like, just in general, like, you've seen enough through hikers at this point, and, you know, I, I've never done one, so I can't I can't speak from experience, but, like, you see people, I think they say one out of every five people that starts a through hike finishes, and what is it, what's the characteristic of the people that actually finish? Like, is there something that you can, is there a pattern or a, a mental sort of setup that, that, is a telltale sign or do you, is it just too hard to figure out? It's, it's kind of hard to pin down. So know that take my answer with the biggest grain of salt. Right. But there's one thing I'll say right off the bat. I always said it takes a lot of luck to through hike. I've somebody I met on the trail this year, a professor said, I don't know if it takes a lot of luck, but it, you need to avoid bad luck. There's a lot of bad luck you need to avoid. So that right off the bat. But then I think it really comes down to, Finding you need to be able to, even when things are really hard and bad, if you can still find those small, beautiful spots, those small victories within that, people who've been able to do that always seem to be able to get their spirits back faster because that's what'll kick you off the trail is when the trail really, you know, when eight straight days of rain come in and you just lose that drive and that. Um, vision of, of 
why you're out there and the beauty of the trail. And constantly reminding yourself to look for those things, even in those hard moments on those tough days, like, you know, that ice storm that gave me such a rough time in Vermont, you know, the ice was beautiful. It was awesome. It was so cool to see. And I, every once in a while, I'd have to remind myself, like, this might be really slowing me down and really pushing me, but it's really beautiful. And I'm also out here for a good challenge. And this is just what happens. So having that mindset of just being able to roll with it, I think helps a lot. You see that in a lot of through hikers and, and that's a big one. That was really well said though. Um, I mean, even, even just yesterday doing the captain, you know, you, the second you hit that, that, uh, landmark or that milestone, like, Ooh, I'm out. This is great. You know, or you're over that hurdle. Um, it's, it's great, but I can't even imagine dealing with blowdowns. I mean, the way you describe Vermont is incredible. Was it, how, just describe the terrain a little bit because it sounds, I mean, I can't imagine anything harder than say like the stretch on the Kinsman's, you know, or the Mahusik's. I'm, what was it about Vermont, like geographically, uh, that was different or was it just yes. the snow? Was it just? It was the snow and ice storm that really, I think, did me in um, <laughs> mentally and physically. So Vermont, yeah. the terrain, the climbs, some of the climbs are big. There are big climbs. You can do a lot of ups and downs, but it's never quite as steep as the whites or as rugged as the whites. There are yeah. a few spots, but for the most part, it's just you're not going to find that in Vermont mm-hmm. on the, on the AT on the long trail you'll find it, but on the AT in Vermont it's not really there. Yeah. But what I what 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 happened to me was, I woke up one morning, and the snow started to fall, and I think where yeah. I was that morning got like a foot or maybe a little more, and then by the end of the day where I'd gotten to, they'd gotten like eight inches, and then like an inch and a half of or an inch of ice, so that yeah. ice was sitting on the snow. And so when I stepped on it, the ice broke and I punched in through the snow and like everything buckled with every step. So I wasn't walking. I was stepping one step at a time. So it's moving really slowly and it was really tiring on my legs. And then the further south I walked, there was less snow. But now I wish there was more snow because the ice had bent all the trees together and they all bent over the trail and then iced together. So yeah. I would stand in spots where it was 270 degrees of just an icy web of trees. I couldn't see a blaze. Yeah. I couldn't see anything. You know, it was really <laughs> mentally exhausting. And so the climbs weren't so bad. You're still going up and down and it's tiring. But now the challenge has shifted to something totally different. To get up on Bromley, I had to crawl 30 feet under a bunch of icy trees. and just crawling through the snow, getting ice all over my face and everything. You know, it wasn't very steep like the top of a summit in the whites would be but there was a completely right. different challenge there. Were you using mile markers f- for psychological boosts? Like, you know, you, you have a note here uh, on Instagram, February 5th, you were 500 miles and two months in. Like, were you using 500 miles as a boost just to get pushing? A hundred percent. I was like, yeah. 500 <laughs> miles. Like, that's a solid chunk of this trail. I was like, you know, I had, I had to hang on to things like that because they really helped yeah. me remind myself every day you wake up and you're like, if you had that thought inside your head of like, I can't do this. It's like yeah. we have 500 miles proving you can. So you know, remember <laughs> that. Amazing. Remember that. Yeah. 
And the and for the listeners, how many miles total for the AT? The AT this year is two thousand one hundred and ninety four point three. So it's it's just shy of twenty two hundred miles. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, so that's the other daunting thing was I was like, I'm five hundred miles in. I was like, cool, seventeen hundred miles to go there, buddy. <laughs> Now, after you leave New England or or the northern portion of New England, how about telling us some of the highlights of some of the the lower states, New York, um, you know, anything that may have stood out to you during that time? Right. Shenandoah, so, uh, any of those? Right. So, yeah, I got out of my snowshoes in northern Massachusetts, and that was the last time okay. I had them on over Greylock. So I swapped my gear in Massachusetts, my pack got lighter, things got warmer. I saw more people out on day hikes and weekend hikes. The snowpack thinned out, and I had a really good time. New York and New Jersey were beautiful. Um, I had a friend come out and see me. A couple friends come out and see me in Connecticut and hike with me for the day. Um, Pennsylvania I enjoyed because in Pennsylvania, you just hike on these ridges for a lot of the day, and then you dip down and come back up. Um, mm-hmm. and there were no leaves in the trees. I saw every sunrise and every sunset. It was beautiful. Yeah. And then the Southern States, um, Virginia, my favorite part of Virginia is just South of Shenandoah. You're hiking in these mountains. Um, it's like the area where the priests by rock all the way through to like apple orchard mountain mm-hmm. and like the three ridges. I love that whole area. It's just a lot of, big vistas when you get a view it's a this big grand vista and the mountains have these beautiful ripples on them where you can see the water wearing out the mountains on the side and um the shadows you get at the beginning and end of the day are gorgeous Uh, at this point also i'm starting to run into you know one or two through hikers a day three to four through hikers a day it's ticking up a bit more um the grayson highlands were pretty the brown highlands were pretty the smokies were stunning this this time so, around so this is roughly what april this is through most of this is through late march and april yeah okay yep. all like right south, tell- middle of southern virginia all the way through okay so the snowshoes are gone uh the tents gone yes are you yep. hammocking at this point yep. yep okay so how heavy is the pack so the pack was probably 35 to 40 35 plus pounds from Massachusetts to like somewhere in Pennsylvania where I swapped out a bit more gear. The nights, it got way warmer at night at at that point. Like I started getting, I stopped getting nights in like the single digits and stuff. Um, Yeah. And then it got warmer. And then I actually weighed my pack for the first time right at the end of the trail. And with food and water, I was right under 30 pounds. So less than really less than half of what I was carrying. Yeah. Gotcha. So uh, on my notes here, I have um, four-month mark, April 5th, 1,500 miles completed. Um, how many miles a day were you doing at this point, roughly? Were you upping, I, the, upping the mileage? Oh, 100%. So the first, yeah. the first two and a half months, I averaged under nine a day. And the last 1,000 miles, I averaged about 21 a day. Mm-hmm. And the last 500, I averaged 20, a little over 22 a day. Okay. Yeah. Now, did you experience any injury on trail or anything that impeded your movement? I can say that without jinxing myself now. I did not. <laughs> That's 
I find that amazing. But no, I got really lucky. I got really lucky. I think it was a yeah. combo of things. I think the weather mm-hmm. and the heavy pack and the terrain up north forced me to start really slowly. And then once yeah. I got that pack off, it became a lot easier on my body. I also, having through hike before, I felt like my body jumped into it a lot faster. Incredible. All right. So yeah. let's see, we're, we're coming close to the end here. So April 15th, you're in Tennessee. Um, April 20th, you have 400 miles left. Was there like, I mean, that must be exciting. Was there a point where you were like, I got this? Like, were you getting cocky at any point or did you sort of dial that back and not even think, think in those terms? No, it was, everything was, if I'm, if I make it, I feel good today. Like if, and when I might finish, I, I didn't, I, I never counted my chickens. Like, <laughs> you know, you take 5 million steps on a hike like this yeah, and you can end your, you can end your hike with one step, right? It's it so true. Bad step to end a hike. And so as much as I got over Mount Greylock and I felt like I was 80% of the way there, but you know, you're not, you're not there until you stand on Springer mountain for me. Right. Yeah. But I also back to what I started with, with that expectations in my head was I had gotten a lot out of this adventure and you know, if I got injured with 300 miles to go and I couldn't finish, I was not, I was not going to let that take away from the adventure I'd had. Right. And, and I, I really believe that, you know, this trail may start and end on Springer Mountain and Katahdin, whichever way you go, but the putting the trail in that box is hindering the, it's, it's, if you put your adventure in that box, mm-hmm. you're limiting yourself. I think, you know, the adventure is so much more, whether it goes further than those mountains or it's somewhere, anywhere in between. I, I, I really believe that. And so, yes, of course I would have been disappointed and I wanted to reach Springer, but if something happened where I couldn't, you know, I, I like to think, <laughs> I like to think that I would have still been able to look back and be really proud of what I did and not let it impact that in, in that way. When you, when you got down south, I'm assuming at some point you started to see some of the the northbound through hikers was how, what was that like? It was crazy. Were you like, I got a story for you guys. It was crazy. So <laughs> I ran into so many folks. There were like 3,300 registered people who started the trail this year. Like mm-hmm. I counted one day, I saw 150 northbounders in a day. I, it was nuts. And it was so rejuvenating. I was seeing through hikers. I like, we all reeked. We all were out there in the rain. Like, <laughs> just somebody to bond with in that way. And it was also funny because some people had were like, yo, I was watching your videos before you left. And then they ran into me yeah. and they're like, are you Scott? And I was like, yes. And they're like, dude. <laughs> so that happened a handful of times. And it was always really fun because I was like, no way. And they're like, you're crazy. Yeah. And you start seeing trail magic and you're oh. like, oh my God, this is like a luxury. Like I was really roughing it. You guys have no idea. Oh, every day. I would stop and smile because it wasn't cold every day, every single day. If I took a break and got to sit there and not shiver 
or if it was just sunny every single day, I was really grateful for that southern part of the trail. When I was doing the script, the thing I was thinking about the most is I was like, I would imagine the day that you swapped out your boots for trail runners was probably the best day. I was going to ask that. that was a, like, when did that happen? I did. That happened just south of Bear, just south of the Hudson River, like right at the Hudson River. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I swapped out my boots for trail runners, and it was funny because I checked, I checked the ten day forecast. This was like late February. I checked the 10-day forecast and I was like, I I don't see a storm in the forecast. I see no snow. Like, we're going into the trail runners. And I, I said to myself, I was like, watch, in two weeks, I'm going to get blasted with snow. And I did get a few snowstorms, but nothing more than like four to six inches was the worst one that melted pretty quickly. So I made the call to switch at the right time. But yeah, it was so much better. Putting them on in the morning when it's cold is easier than the boots and they're lighter and I'm more agile and they, they fit my feet really well. It just, it was great. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine because that, that was the, the thing that stood out to me is that like once you can get, because it's top of mind for me because I just did this hike and it was the first hike I did without boots and I, I could wear trail runners and I was like, this is fantastic. So um, what, uh, how was your sort of mental state around transitioning back into, and I know we talked a little bit before we recorded around the fact that, you know, you've been resting a lot and, and, and adjusting, but can you talk a little bit about the sort of adjusting back into uh, normal civilian life once you step off the trail? Right, right. So last, when I finished in 2019, I had no plans. I had no job interviews lined up. i didn't have an idea of what kind of job I was looking for. I had no plans even for seeing free. I had no plans for after the trail. Zero, literally zero plans. I came off the trail. I came home. I started looking for jobs. I sort of was just in this mishmash, lost void of space, just sort of figuring things out. And that really caused me a lot of trouble mentally. I went through a lot of post-trail depression and I've struggled with my mental health for a long time. And I, I knew that coming off the trail in that way was not helpful. So this time around, I did a lot of work beforehand to make sure I had hopefully a smoother transition this time. So that was applying to grad school. I'm going to grad school this summer up in Vermont. I'm starting that. And so I have a direction, a clear direction that I'm going to. I'm studying to be a high school physics teacher. So I'm getting a teaching degree. So I have that lined up for the next year and it's something to go do. And it's something else to go divert my energy towards. And I also have a little trip coming up with a friend. I'm flying out to Colorado and road tripping back across the country with my best friend. And so I have stuff like that lined up that's sort of breaking this all up and giving me stuff to do and giving me sort of somewhere to channel my energy. And I think that's going to help me a lot because there's something really wonderful about waking up every day and having your goal be so clear. Like I wake up and I follow those white blazes in this direction. Like this is, this is what I do. Right. And to get up in the morning and be like, okay, like I've got homework, I've got class, I've got a, B and C to do today. Let's do it. Right. I I think that's going to help me a lot. And, um, we'll see. Cause I definitely anticipate also like a letdown from all of this there's nothing like being out and through hiking, you know, as hard as it may be, I never would rather be anywhere else on those hard days, but you know, these adventures have to end and I have to learn how to transition out of them. And so 
this is just another, this is an, this, to me, this is just a continuation of the adventure. Um, I actually got a really awesome message from um, uh, a friend before I finished. And he said, when you stand on Springer, know that it might be, you know, I forget exactly what you said, but it might be the end of the journey, but it's also day one of something new. So yeah. keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. And, and that really helped. That really helped to hear. Yeah. Listeners should know that Scott was kind enough to join us literally just off trail. I mean, you, you and I spoke via direct message. You had just finished and you had just hopped onto a plane and here you are the next day. And I mean, you're like still flying high from this whole adventure. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty epic and, you know, just for you being here tonight is pretty cool but you should check in with us in a couple months and give us an update yeah. as to see how you know how you're doing and everything else right you know right. no for sure yeah. yeah i mean i stood on springer mountain four days ago it's yeah <laughs> it's epic i did a 24 and a half mile day four days ago to get off to, to finish the at <laughs> Crazy. Wow. Um, do you feel like you've milked the Northeast for everything? Because I worry about this too. Like I think like, you know, I've done the 4,000 footers and all these lists and I, you know, there's still plenty of areas I need to explore, but you know, how do you keep it for like, have you milked the Northeast for everything that you can milk it for and you've got to get to another part of the country to really <laughs> re-energize or do, how do you, how would you think you'll keep it fresh with hiking? I've got some good ideas. I've got, <laughs> okay. oh, I've got so many ideas. Like my, my okay. friends, you should hear that. I talk to them and they're like, are you kidding me? And so, <laughs> no, I think that's one of the beautiful things I think about the Northeast is, so much stuff has been done, but there's still, I think a lot of room to be creative and have fun. And, um, that's what I love about these trails. And that's what I love about coming here in the winter is this is me being creative. I get to have a really fun time and do this in a unique way. And like on my birthday last year, I looked at the maps and I was like, this looks like a fun loop to do sandwich dome, white face, pass the Conway and the tri pyramids in a day. Like, let's just go do that. Right. What does that look like? (laughs) And, Getting creative like that, I think, is a lot of fun. And it doesn't always need to be harder or more intense or whatever it may be. It just needs to be something that speaks to me or you or or whoever. And um, so I definitely have some ideas. But, you know, it is other – it's also something – it's a good note is that so much has been done in this area. Like, is it exhausted out? And I think – I'm sorry. I feel like I'm rambling, but no, I, I, I think, I think a lot about on this hike, I thought a lot about like the idea of comparison, right? What has caused me a lot of trouble in the past is like, you know, if you tried to compare my journey to even someone else who did something similar, if you compare my journey to the hiking Vikings or to Rich and Arlette's or to someone else, our journeys are incomparable. I feel right. Like to compare them would to take would be to take away from both of our experiences. And so I think to go into these mountains with that, with this idea that like, Hey, maybe someone else has done this before, but I'm going to go out there and I'm going to have my own journey, my own experience. And it's the time and the weather. And it's not to be compared with someone else. This is just a fun day out for me. This is just, I'm experiencing this for myself. And I think I've been trying to take that mindset into a lot of the things I do because 
yeah, okay, a penny loop's been done a million times or whatever big hike I want to do has been done so many times, but I'm still getting to experience it that day. And so to separate it and to keep leave it uncompared to how everyone else is doing it and to celebrate all those journeys, including mine, I think really allows us to get a fresh look at all of these mountains and all of these challenges and things. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do worry about like, okay, have I been there and done that? And with, with all of these different hikes, but then I, like last week we had Christina on and she was talking about the Jigger Johnson race that she shrunk together, like this, this course from like South Moat to connect to Beer Notch Road down to Sawyer River out through Osseo. And I had never thought of like, you could ever do that. So there is a, an infinite amount of, of different routes that you can take. So I've never been out to the captain, so maybe I'll I'll try that. Yeah. But that's that's good to hear that you, even like you've covered so much ground and you still feel like there's more more to keep you busy. Yeah, yeah. I and I think it's exciting. And this is one thing I've been doing in the Adirondacks too. Is I've been just going and hiking all the trails that I haven't touched that are in the middle of nowhere that see a lot less traffic. You know, maybe they don't have the most most the most gain or the biggest view or what have you, but um, they're just enjoyable trails to be on. And this is sort of coming down the Skookum Truck Trail that day when I bailed off Franconia Ridge. It was a reminder, like, I was like, oh, man, I'm not doing Appalachian Trail miles. But you know what? It's a beautiful day, and I've never been on this trail before. And so I'm still out here hiking. I'm out here this winter to have fun and hike. And I'm still, you know, I'm not on the AT, but I'm still hiking. So I'm still having a good day, right? It's it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right well stomp this guy he didn't he didn't get into this piece of it but this guy hates bugs so much that he was like i'm just gonna do it in the winter <laughs> i don't care what i need to do i'm gonna do a winter music just to avoid the bugs <gasps> that's just so great i i i'm yeah. right there with you <laughs> it was that was really nice that was really nice yeah. the bugs yeah. They're coming. Um, so we got to wrap up in a minute, but there's a couple of things that I did want to ask you about mm-hmm. gear. So, um, and I've had this issue before. <laughs> I've had like, I've taken those like red propane tanks and my winter overnights and I'm like, oh, it won't light. And I've like hung it over. I've like sort of dangled it over the, the, the fire that we had. And I'm like, I'll just warm up my canister a little bit to get it to like, <laughs> but which is don't ever do that. But what did you do to keep, to actually have fuel work in, in crazy winter conditions? I use an MSR Whisper Light International. So it's a, it's okay. a liquid fuel stove that you can pressurize yep. yourself. So as cold as it gets, it still works. Because okay. what happens with those canister fuel stoves in the cold is it's a pressure thing. It gets so cold that the pressure inside isn't enough to force gas out to light. I believe that's what happens. Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but the white gas stove is just a fuel tank with white gas. You screw this pump onto it, you hook it up, and then you pump it. So you're pressurizing the whole system, and so there's enough of a flow where you – it still works. It still boils snow, water, 15, 20 below, whatever it may be. Um, so it's a little heavier and a little clunkier, but that's what I did. All right. Yeah, I'll check that out because I'm was always i always kind of curious about the winter stove situation. I usually have my buddies deal with that. I'm like, you, you guys seem to know what to do. Just bring a those stove. Can- I'll, I'll mooch up. If here. you're having trouble with those canisters in the cold, you have to put them in your jacket for like 
a little while mm-hmm. before you cook with them, and then it doesn't. There you have limited time. Yeah. Okay. And then what about like um, the the worst situation you ever got in? Like, did you ever feel like, oh no, I, I might need a rescue here? Or did you did you not 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 worry about that too much? I when it, if if I ever thought that was going to happen, I ended up trying to divert it in some way so that it wouldn't happen. Right, like the Franconia Ridge situation. I was like, this could turn into something bad. I turned around. There was another situation where I had a lot of damn clothes. I was like four days into the stretch and it was gonna be like 35 below on the Bigelow's. I was like, I need to zero my tent. Like I, I can't go up there in these conditions with what I've got going on with all my damn clothes. So, you know, the Washington waiting out the weather. So it was situations like that where if I felt uncomfortable or like I was going to be uncomfortable in that situation, I tried to avoid it. And I tried to have enough gear and food to always make sure I could I could work around that that scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, it's quite a story. You did an accomplishment. I don't even know. Do you even know how many people have done a, a southbound in 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 the winter conditions? So there's Arlet last year. Yeah. There's Jabba the hiking Viking. There's yeah. a fellow trauma. There's a guy, Trauma, who he's the guy who also was in – he was one of the two people who did the PCT that winter. I believe okay. I believe he's done the southbound AT in the winter. I heard rumors from a couple folks while I was on this trail from like hostel owners and such. I heard rumors of like one or maybe two other people in like the 90s or early 2000s coming through in the winter. Whether or not they made it, where they started, finished, I don't know. None of that I know. But I've heard – about other things so that's what i know there may be more i have no idea i I just i do know that this is something that gets very rarely attempted the atc describes it as a handful of people who've who've attempted this yeah yeah and it's crazy because it's a mix of skill knowledge of the area luck with the weather and then grit and determination so it's it's everything's got to come together perfectly to make it happen and yeah and you know desire to do it right like most people get on the Appalachian Trail to do a through hike and they're not looking for this experience they're looking to feel overwhelmed every day like this like they want the social experience they want the AT going northbound they want the good weather and this they want to watch spring happen in that way and and I get that. And that's why the trail is beautiful is both of those experiences can, can happen on the same footpath. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So congratulations. Scott. Did we miss anything? No, no, that was a great episode. Thank you so much, Scott. Very much appreciated. Thank you for having me. Get some rest. Get some rest. And uh, we'll definitely, we want to check in with you again. Uh, I I get a sense that you've got some crazy ideas, so I want you to (laughs) keep in touch and and we'll hear about your adventures this summer. Yeah. yeah. Stay in touch. I'll be in the whites. Drop us a line anytime. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank y'all so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. 
You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got...